and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson. I'm the editor of Squiggly Magazine. I'm joined by Ben. I'm Ben Mitchell. I write for Squiggly. I'm a grown man who likes cartoons. So we've made it. Animation podcast number two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, onwards and upwards onto the second podcast. We got some fantastic responses, really, from everyone listening. So thank you all very much. If you sent us a tweet, if you sent us an email, if you just got in touch, uh, we were very grateful for all the uh, correspondence we got. And uh, yeah, the consensus is that you enjoy it. So we'll keep making these as long as you guys keep enjoying them. It's very validating. I find it is. Yeah, I did. I did a heck of a lot of retweeting, if you'll pardon my language. I think I've alienated everyone who follows me on Twitter because it was just a vainglorious display of all the positive feedback and and lovely, lovely things everyone had to say. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You finally got to see Pirates. Yeah, I did. Uh, I I think I me and the person I went with were the last two people in Bristol. It was sort of against, you know, local law to have not seen this film. It's a source of tremendous local pride. Yeah, And a uh, very good piece of work. In front of an impartial audience, got a lot of laughs, got a lot of, you know, really visually ingenious moments. In particular, there's a uh, there's a scene with a, a dumb waiter that um, I keep thinking of. It's very funny. And about 87% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, excellent, yeah. Well, that's always, that's always a good sign, Rotten Tomatoes. See, so we hitched our wagon to a pretty good star. We did, Who'd yes. have thought? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, what do we have on today's podcast? Uh, we've got an interview with the magnificent Barry Purvis, uh, fantastically acclaimed stop-motion wizard. Um, mm. Always very approachable, really kind of into his craft and willing to share it with people. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing how that goes. We've also got a few a few more bits and bobs. Obviously, we've got the results of the verses, the big clash uh-huh. of the titans between the Simpsons and Family Guy. We'll see who won that uh, epic battle. Yes, yes, indeed. Also, more from Fraser McLean about his book Setting the Scene. We're going to take a, a walk around the Media Museum with the curator of the In the Blink of an Eye exhibition, which focuses on movement. Excellent. Let's get started. So um, Colin at the National Media Museum in Bradford took us around his uh, fascinating exhibition, Blink of an Eye. It's very important for an animator. I think it's your duty to be obsessed by movement and motion. Hmm. And so an exhibition such as this at the Media Museum, it's free. If you're in if you're in the Bradford area, why not go down and have a look? How long is it going on for? It's going on until September, so there's plenty of time mm. to get yourselves down there and see it. Here's Colin talking us through a few of the exhibitions. Now we enter the um, first of the galleries, Gallery 1. Now this exhibition is unusual as much as we cover both exhibition galleries in the museum, Gallery 1 and Gallery 2. So within this first gallery, we really present the idea of, of the idea of fascination of movement and how even before the events of photography artists have tried to create a sense of movement through through drawings, through lantern slides and through Victorian optical toys, zoetropes, praxinoscopes, uh, phenakistoscopes and so on. So we have a selection of um, optical toys from, from our collection but rather than presenting them as inanimate dead objects what we've done is we've included um, new animations from these which we're projecting on the wall. So you can see examples here of uh, zoetrope strips, magic lantern slipping slides and so on. So you see in effect of what they would look like when they're moving rather than just being static in a, in a showcase. The, so, you, um, mm-hmm. so you'd say these were like, uh, we could trace these back as like the earliest um, 
These are the earliest forms of trying to represent movement through, mm. through a series of, of still images. In the most simple form, you just have two images which you flick from one to the other. So it could be a dog jumping through a hoop uh, and so on. Through to quite sophisticated uh, examples like the um, praxinoscope, where you have multiple drawn images which are presented to create short animated loops. And these are things that were sort of novelties in, in the sort of Victorian period. The, uh, the centerpiece, as you come in, is a replica of a three-dimensional zoetrope that was created by the French physiologist Etienne Jules Marais in the, uh, in the 1880s. Um, Marais photographed, he devised a, um, a camera which he called the uh, fusil photographique, the photographic rifle, and he used this to, um, to photograph birds in flight. And what he then did is use those photographs to form the basis of three-dimensional models mm. which he put into a zoetrope, and when the drum revolves, you actually see the bird in flight. So it's a, it's a progression of the, the normal drawn animation that you see within zoetropes. So we have drawn animation, which then leads into the next section, which we look at the idea of photographing movement. Um, of course, by the 1880s, with the introduction of so-called dry photographic plates with much faster exposures, uh, it was possible to actually freeze motion for the first time. And of course, the best, um, the best known exponent of this is, is Edward Muybridge, who, um, who photographed animals and people in motion um, in America in the 1880s, and he published Animal Locomotion, a series of hundreds of sequential studies of um, horses, um, all sorts of domestic animals, wild animals, men, women, children in various states of undress, performing everyday actions. And the idea that you can break down movement into a series of sequential actions. Um, of course, the next sequence then is to move away from still sequences to put them back in to recreate the sense of motion. So Mybridge is obviously the best known of the, the sequential photographers, but he was by no means unique. There were many um, experimenters in the 1880s onwards who worked with sequential phot photography. We have two much less known works here. One is by an unknown photographer, but these are a series of shots, stereoscopic images that were posed and they were designed for a, uh, a viewer designed by Charles Wheatstone, um, a stereomutoscope. Um, these aren't action photographs, these are very carefully posed studies of a soldier presenting arms and going through various drills with his rifle. And the idea that these would be viewed in a, um, a view a bit like a, a drum mutoscope and you would create not just moving images, but three-dimensional moving images. So in the 1870s, 3D movies uh, were available for the first time. So it's such a shame, <clears throat> such a shame that it's an unknown photographer to have sort of yes. brought this innovation around. Yeah, well, Charles Wheatstone, of course, is very well known for the work he did on, on stereoscopy, uh, amongst other things, uh, one of the best-known Victorian physicists and scientists. But uh, this work is comparatively little known, so it's, we're really pleased that we can actually get this on display. And as far as I know, this is the first time these have been displayed in this form in, in, in a complete way in any exhibition. Next to it, we have um, some work by a photographer called Arthur Clive Banfield. And he took sequential photographs of a, whole, of a, a cat and a dog jumping over a little barrier. Uh, these date from 1900. And uh, elsewhere in the exhibition, what we've done is animate these. So what we've done is, as well as showing the still images, we've actually created animation, animated versions so people can actually see how they would have appeared animated as well. He, he was an incredibly wide-ranging photographer. He did chrono photography, high-speed photography, he did portraiture, early colour photography, micro-photography, um, and then he moved into pictorialism, 
So he was incredibly varied in, in his work, but again, deserves to be much better known than, than he is. Well, you can see here from, from an animation point of view, uh, whether whether dogs jumping across and the cats jump, jumping across is actually uh, annotated. Is this his annotation? Yes, yes. This is, this is um, the original um, display that was actually shown at the Royal Photographic Society annual exhibition at the turn of the century with his, his annotations. Next to it we have the uh, familiar mutoscope machine, or what the butler saw machine, um, developed in the 1890s by Herman Kastler in America, but very popular in Britain until very recently really. It's um, the idea of he would have a, a drum of images, he'd turn the handle and it would flick through. Often these would show fairly risque subjects, um, titillating for um, sort of uh, Edwardian viewers, but uh, very, very tame by modern eyes of course. Um, and he would have these uh, at the, um, on the pier, um, on, the, on the front, and you would put your penny in and you would get a short, a short moving, moving image there. This one actually showed King Kong. Not quite as titillating as, uh, <laughs> no, as some no. of the others. We also have examples of some of the equipment. Here we have a, a replica of Edward Mybridge's Zoopraxiscope. And this was the uh, projection device which he used and he transferred his photographs onto circular disc, glass discs, and these then revolved through a shutter mechanism. Um, they were projected onto a screen and created uh, projected moving pictures. Um, ironically, of course, because of the, the nature of the optics, his photographs didn't work as they were because they, the projector condensed them, squashed them. So instead of using photographs, he had to use hand-drawn images based on the photographs that were stretched um, which compensated for the, the effect of the projector. So when they were projected, then they looked normal, normal scale. This is a replica, uh, an exact replica, made um, by the Science Museum in the, in the 1950s. The original is at the Kingston upon Thames Museum, the Mybridge, uh, the Mybridge Museum there. Marais work here. Next we have the uh, Marais, and these are probably the examples he's best known for. These are chrono photographs. He, he devised the term chrono photography, literally photographing time. And what he would do is to take sequential shots, not like Mybridge did, where you would have a separate shot of each part of the movement. He would overlap these on one photographic plate. So what you have here in front of us, we have the running man, where you see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, seemingly twelve men running through the frame, each demonstrating a different aspect of movement. Um, so a different aspect. And what these represent, of course, is not one moment in time, this represents several seconds. So photographing time, chrono photography. And we have the man running, jumping, high jump and so on. On the screen, as well as the animated versions of images by Mybridge, Marais, Anschutz, uh, Arthur Banfield and so on, we've also included contemporary work, um, images made by the Royal Veterinary College, um, their animal, um, animal structure and motion labs. So even today, people are still photographing animals, analysing their movements to try and improve veterinary care and so on. So it's quite good that we, what we want to do is to, to use contemporary work alongside historic material wherever possible. The main part of the gallery is dominated by a video installation called Forms and this has been created by uh, Davide Keola and Memo Acton and what the artists have done is to take uh, footage of, um, in this case, Commonwealth Games athletes and use that footage as the basis for creating abstract three-dimensional artworks. So what they've done is 
uh, plot the actual movement and then create abstract forms which are then, um, are then projected. So difficult to explain, but incredibly um, intriguing graphic forms which at some point become very abstract, at others you can just about make out what the original footage is. And alongside the, the main work you can actually see the original footage that it's based on and go through various degrees of abstraction. Uh, the, uh, the thickness of the lines and the sort of um, the pattern of the lines really do match the movement. It's, uh, yes. It really is. It's something to be seen really. It's, um, it's yes. gorgeous. It is. Uh, this section is uh, what we call slicing time and here we look at the uh, notion of, of, of time slice photography or bullet photography or matrix photography and the key exhibit here is um, one of the prototype time slice cameras that um, was designed by Tim McMillan who uh, created the concept of time slice in the 1990s um, and what we basically have here is a, um, uh, a circular structure probably about um, seven feet uh, in diameter and effectively what it is, is a series of pinhole um, cameras. There are hundreds of pinholes around the, set, the inside of the circle. 35mm film was placed around the inside um, and then exposure was made through an um, electronic flash and it created hundreds of separate um, shots, each of a slightly different angle. And when these are run together as a film, you create a 360 degree view of a subject seemingly suspended in space. And this is what people have seen obviously in, in films like The Matrix and is now used widely for all sorts of advertising, entertainment and so on. Next week we have um, Capture in Motion where we look at the idea of motion capture. Again this goes back to the work of Marais in the 1890s where he dressed his assistants entirely in black with uh, white lines down their arms and legs and then he created, when he photographed them, he created a graphical representation of the movement. And the same is the principle now used for motion capture systems um, used in the gaming environment, uh, CGI and so on. So there's still the idea that you have a black suit with marker points which you then convert movement into, uh, into digital information which you can use to actually create um, movement for, for video games and so on. And we have a, a motion capture suit on display here. So this is the sort of suit which is used for things like the, uh, the famous um, Evian water advert where the babies are roller skating and so on. And the final section here is called Time and Motion. And this is how uh, motion photography, motion analysis has been used within industry to try and improve efficiency. So the idea being that if you can photograph somebody's movement, analyze it, you can work out are they making too many moves, what's, what's being inefficient, how can you speed things up, how can you increase production without increasing people's effort. So this is um, Time and Motion um, and a, uh, an American called Frank Gilbreth developed what he calls uh, chronocycle graphs uh, and we have some examples framed in front of us and what he did basically was attach lights to people's hands and then ask them to perform certain jobs um, and the shutter of the camera remained open so you get a light trace that explains how people have moved their hands and what you can then do is analyze all these light traces to try and work out is there a more efficient way of them doing the job so they cut down the amount of movement, the amount of effort required. Um, on, we have some black and white, we also have some color images so as well as having lights on your hand you can change the color so uh, you could have perhaps a yellow bulb on your right hand and a red bulb on your left hand 
so each hand has a different color trace. If the light flashes on and off, not only do you get the sense of how the hand moves, you get a sense of how quickly it moves, because depending on how long the actual dash is, it shows how fast or how slowly their hands are moving. So these were used from the 1920s onwards to actually analyze improvement uh, and improve efficiency for time and motion. It was Colin Harding talking us through the first gallery of the In the Blink of an Eye exhibition at the National Media Museum. And we will be rejoining that tour later on in the podcast. Next up, we have our interview with Barry Purvis. Uh, Steve. How did that go? Oh, great, yeah. I spoke to him at the end of end of last year, around about December time. For those who haven't heard about Barry, uh, let's just go through a little bit of his um, bit of his history, really. He's quite a prolific character in the world of, of animation. Uh, Stop-motion animator. Um, he's got a background in the stage before he joined Cosgrove Hall uh, back in the 70s, where he worked on Charlton and the Wheelies. He animated uh, Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows. He worked on Cockle Shell Bay. He tried a little bit of 2D on the likes of Danger Mouse and stuff. More recently, he's worked on Engie Benji, Rupert the Bear, Follow the Magic, Little Robots, Noddy, Fifi and the Flower Tops. And that's before you get onto his own stuff. He's also mm-hmm. worked on his own work, which I think defines him better as an animator. Next, which is my personal favourite. He also worked on a film called Screenplay, which was Oscar nominated. Rigoletto, Achilles. Gilbert and Sullivan, The Very Models. I think he worked with Ardman on Hamilton's Mattress. I think that was an Ardman production or a co-production. And he's got two films out at the moment which are going around festivals and things. One's called Plume and the other is called Tchaikovsky. You should check them both out. They're fantastic. Guy's very, uh, his work very informed by performance and theatre and music and plays and that kind of thing. It's a recurring thing. I, I'm aware of Tchaikovsky but I'm not aware of the other one. What's that? Well, uh, Plume, uh, the, the premise basically is it's, it's a man with wings. It's it's not an angel, it's not a, a Greek god or anything like that. It's basically a guy who flies around, he meets trouble with these shadowy characters who rip his wings off and then he has to find a way to adapt and evolve through that. Uh, I don't spoil it, but I think that uh, people should watch it. Yeah. I think I'm in agreement with you um, as far as next. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for that. Well, I, actually, well, I guess because I didn't see most of his other work until I was considerably older. Without really any kind of knowledge of Shakespeare, it was just very, very fascinating. Because, and then you watch it as an adult and you have that, you know, secondary school English classes behind you, like, oh, okay, there's that bit and that bit. And just a sort of like a capsule a summation of it, it's, a, it's William Shakespeare sort of essentially auditioning and going through scenes from his various plays with like a, a mannequin. But uh, when you don't know that's what it's about, it's just this guy on a stage being quite cruel to a dummy. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and amazing music, and that's been throughout all his work. Really, really great choice of composers, really binds it all together. I, th- I think Barry would agree that in his latest film, Tchaikovsky has picked the best composer. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the Tales from the Old Piano series. Who, uh, who is that composer? Who, <laughs> um, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, if, you, if you did like Next, Tchaikovsky is very much in the same vein. Yeah, it does strike me as a bit of a companion piece. It is done in a slightly separate way. I, I imagine it is Tchaikovsky. He's gone to sort of this purgatory room and he has to justify his life through his letters and through his through his communications and through his interactions with people. Uh, and there's a, a beautiful use of roses, red roses and, and things all the way through it. it. It is another one of Barry's masterpieces to put with with the likes of uh, Next and Achilles and Rigoletto and so forth. Before we begin this interview, uh, people who know me will be delighted to hear uh, Barry 
schooling me on my Ray Harryhausen knowledge. Uh, I think if people just listen out for my stumbling around and <laughs> quite cringeworthy for me, but quite entertaining for people who think I'm a little bit of an animation smart ass. I get called out. <laughs> Excellent. Let's have a listen. Thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. It's been a very busy year for you. Um, yes. We've got two films, two brand new films from you. First of all, um, Plume. It was it was a long time, 16 years in the making. I mean, how does an idea uh, differ from its uh, in original incarnation right the way through to, to its, its final product? Yes. Um, well, you know, when you write a project, your imagination just flows. Usually... You do have some idea of budgets and schedules and things and think, God, I could never do that. But you try and write freely and honestly, and then you get the budget. And yes, you do have to compromise, but that is the nature of it, so that's not a criticism. Um, you know, getting the money was a problem with this film. And I tried all sorts of forms to get it made live action. It almost became a dance piece in New Zealand. Um, with the sort of New Zealand equivalent of Matthew Bourne. Um, but that didn't happen. I left New Zealand and I kept trying, tried Northwest Vision and they turned it down and all sorts of people turned it down. Um, but happily, the uh, producers in France, Dark Prince, saw a retrospective of mine and um, raised money. And they, I think they raised money from about six different uh, departments in, in France. Um, and it was a healthy budget but there were still compromises we had to make. Um, it was a respectfully helpfully helpful budget in this climate. Um, we lost, there were going to be four shadowy characters, and we lost one through sheer economics. And actually that's okay, because I think it helped the choreography of having one shadow character sat on one wing, another on another, and another between the legs. If there'd been a fourth, I'm not quite sure where he would have gone. So that was okay, I didn't mind that. And also it helped speed up the filming. It was a tough schedule of about 11, 12 seconds a day, um, which is again down to economics. And perhaps physical stuff, fighting and things, does take a long time to do. And perhaps there wasn't as much of that as I intended. But, you know, it was a good budget. I did shoot it in France. Good croissants. But I was away from home and I'm always a bit you when I'm away from home. I was particularly sad because I um, I was asked to Ray Harryhausen's 90th birthday to speak at his 90th birthday, along with people like John Landis and Peter Jackson and things. And we were shooting in a tiny town called uh, Chateau Renault. And the logistics of me getting to London in time to do a speech and coming back again for filming on Monday, I just couldn't afford it. And I was sad to miss that. <laughs> I gather it was a very big do. And I sent all the emails and saying, I literally cannot come. And they didn't get my emails. <laughs> Apparently John Landis oh, shame. was stood on stage and said, and now we'd like to introduce Barry Purvis to speak to uh, Big Fat Ray. Oh, no. And I wasn't there. Oh, blimey. <laughs> so all these, you know, Peter Jackson's head turned around to see where I was, and I wasn't there. Oh, crikey. So it's a shame on me, but I had, um, I had a nice breakfast with Ray the other day, so that was good. Made up for that. You're uh, good friends with Ray Harryhausen, I take it. Yes, yes, yes. We've um, we've done a few lecture tours. Well, we did a lecture tour of, of America together, and I interviewed him on stage at Bath quite a while back, and he really enjoyed it because a lot of the people who interview him are quite maybe academic or 
said it was really nice to actually have an animator chatting to him because I, as is my way, I tend to ask not the obvious questions <laughs> and more about character and, and motivation. And just this summer, I've done a few tributes to him at uh, the Empire, the big screen event at the O2, and Carolyn Monroe, myself, and uh, Tony Dalton, who's a biographer. Mm. Um, we had an event about him. And also at Somerset House, there was an evening of monster movies, and we made it about Ray, and that was good. So, um, and yes, I've got a Ray event next year, but that's a bit top secret. All right, <laughs> I'm, sure that, I'm sure that more than makes up for you, your absence. I've got a really lovely picture of Ray holding Tchaikovsky. Oh, wow. What, what, what does he think of the film? Has he seen the films? He loves it. He loves Plume. He loves Plume, yeah. I would say that the, the three creatures in, in uh, Plume, they are the closest thing I've seen to in the modern age to anything Ray Harryhausen did. It's almost like a... It's not an influence, obviously. It's original, but it's like they are as, as horrifying as Ray Harryhausen's monsters. Yes. Which ones do you think... Which of Ray's work do you think they might echo? I have something in mind. Well, you, you're going to have to tell me. I mean, it could be anything from the Sinbad to the through through to um, obviously Medusa's the big, the main, you know, the main yeah. monster. But the skeletons, you know, the way the creepy no, uh, eyeless no, skeletons no, sort of move around. No, no, I had something in mind when I was sort of thinking of them. Um, and yes, Jason is probably my favourite film with Mysterious Island. But I have a real fondness for one you haven't mentioned. You're going to have to right. put me out in misery. I'm turning the question on you now. <laughs> oh, this is cruel. This is cruel. Um, uh, yes, it's not a direct influence, but I was thinking of these characters when I was animating them, especially in their design a bit and their body language. The Selenites in First Men in the Moon. I haven't seen I, I haven't seen I start, I haven't seen that. Well, you know what you're doing this evening. I do. I think. I think I do. Yeah, the first men on the moon. That's the old um, H.G. Wells. In the moon. In the moon. Yes, Ray gets very upset if anybody says first men on the moon. Right. Okay. It is a masterpiece. That film. It has an emotion that isn't in the other films. It's very melancholic, and there are these little selamites. Um, sometimes they're children in rubber suits, and sometimes they're stop motion. And today, the difference screams out. It didn't then, but. I don't think we'll see that again. What stop motion is doing now is being true to itself in films like Fantastic Mr. Fox and Mary and Max. It's not pretending to be anything other than stop motion, and I'm, nor should it be, I think. Um, anyway, we were chatting about Bloom. Yes, yeah. Where did the original uh, idea come from? Two things happened at the same time, really. Um, one was the Mars Attacks thing. That was going to be a stop motion the Creatures were going to be stop motion, but eventually our work was replaced by CG. So the idea of adapting was one thing. And then my mother died at the same time, and I thought, cracky, how do I go on? You know, the most traumatic event, but I've got to get through this, I've got to adapt. And those two sort of ideas of having to adapt after a traumatic, life-changing event sort of... Um, got me thinking, you know, I'd been away from England for a year on Mars Attacks, and I thought, I need to make a film, but there's not much money around, I have to make one as cheaply as I can. Okay, I don't need sets, I don't need costumes, I just need puppets, and that's how it 
sort of happen. And I thought, well, this is quite a nice movement thing. I like the idea that the film is half a ballet and half a rugby scrum. <laughs> I thought that was quite an interesting animation challenge. And I thought, well, yes, I can play with the light and shade. They are both sides of him. The shadowy characters are what he would become if he succumbed to grief or gave up. So that's, that was sort of the roots of the film. I do have this obsession with wings. Every film I've done, a character transforms into something with wings or into an animal or a bird. Uh, the only slight difference is in Achilles, they uh, turn into bulls and horses, but um, I like this sort of idea of transformation and metaphor of role-playing. And the wings, I don't know what they represent to me, Some either some sort of freedom away from social, cultural, gender, gravity, some sort of true self, I guess, some sort of joy and art and beauty that this film gets destroyed. It, it does. It, it, you've, you've answered another one of my questions that was that was coming up about the wings. Obviously, in Tchaikovsky, you've got the wings in the background as well. There's a, a significance there. We obviously uh, well, swans. Mm. Um, you know, I think all drama is about a change of perspective. You know, most dramas, our protagonist either goes to Oz or goes down a rabbit hole or, or changes sex or becomes blind. There's a dramatic change of perspective or he escapes into another place, but he gets a glimpse of his real self somehow through this change of perspective. I think with Tchaikovsky, a lot of his operas and ballets are about a change of perspective. In Swan Lake, the women become swans and they live much truer lives, you know, that's what the swans mean, it, it represents the real self away from the court, away from all that gender, you know, and Tchaikovsky himself being a gay man in, in Moscow, there was a release, the idea of becoming a swan free from society and stuff was appealing. Likewise with Clara and the Nutcracker, she goes to this kingdom of sweets and she has adventures away from her rather strict family. And while she's having these adventures, she learns about herself and learns she's on the verge of becoming a woman. And in a lot of his operas, there are women breaking social conventions who have been you know, really tied down through society and gender and politics and whatever. And they find a way of living a different life. And I think that's sort of what wings are to me. It's sort of free from everything. But, you know, it was bizarre, even in things like Wind in the Willows, I was getting this sort of role-playing and characters becoming animals and birds, and, and in Next, there are the wings at the end, mm -hmm. seen from Cymbeline. Uh, screenplay, <laughs> they literally become birds at the end, and all the way through there are these two birds echoing their, their, their stories, these silhouette birds, and they become birds at the end. Rigoletto, they're all wearing bird masks, which sort of shows their um, its visual shorthand for the hierarchy of the uh, characters. The Duke is wearing this magnificent eagle's head. Rigoletto is wearing a turkey. So I was using birds there to get the hierarchy. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, they become fairies at one point from Ireland. The Hamilton Mattress. And Aardvark goes to Beak City. Yep. <laughs> uh, they are all birds, and the birds are bit more corrupt there but it's mm. again you know it's it's the Alice Dorothy journey to another another uh, place where he learns about himself so I think it's a change of perspective where you can learn about yourself that's what wings mean to me and yeah. they're beautiful 
they obviously channeled a lot of the the passion for for wings um, into um, Plume. The wings, the the movement in the film. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I do. I do recommend you, you you do seek it out in festivals or, or however you want to see it. The wings in it there are spectacular. There's a, there's great weight behind it. It's obviously something that you you are passionate about and something that, that does. Um, well, I tried to give them a character, and he does use them as a almost a weapon at one point um, when he's being attacked. He does swing around and uses the weight of the wings to knock the shadowy characters off. And when we were making the puppet. It was this elephant in the room of the wings that we think, so how are we going to do these wings? And um, nature gave us some wings. And I was pleasantly surprised at how much expression I could get out of the wings. I, I think I'd always assumed they would just be sticking out erect behind him. But I managed to fold them around him like a cloak and they could hang loosely and they could look perky. And they're just a joy to animate, as Mr. Harry has demonstrated many times. They are beautiful, beautiful things to do, Wings. And also, also I guess, Steve, they're like a dog's tail. They're a form of expression. They're a form of externalizing the internal uh, thought process, whether it's drooping or erect or flapping around, you know. And as animators, I think we love these quirky, you know, telling stories through the use of ears or a tail or wings. Mm. You know, uh, they're not just uh, mechanical things stuck on his back they do reflect his emotion the way he shelters himself with them and and and, and things yes. like that yeah yes. the, the, obviously it's the the first comparison uh, would be that people say that he's an angel or he's eros or anteros or or, or uh, uh, some other uh, mythological creature but you said that he was you just you just called him cliff and the shadows and that was a lovely story could you sort of elaborate on that okay um it was important to me there was absolutely no cultural references in this film. He was a man with wings who was raped for his wings and has no wings, that's it. I didn't want to make him an angel and I didn't want him to make him Icarus or Daedalus. So we stripped him of any costume. There's no costume and I kept thinking, you know, he is naked and he's not naked because I wanted to show off his body or anything, but he's naked because He's a man with wings, and that's it. There's no history, there's no culture. I wanted to be as metaphorical as I could. We gave him a bit of blue. I'm not sure that worked totally well, um, but I wanted to have this sort of body paint on him that gets washed when he jumps in the water, so like a cathartic beginning again. Uh, and so we put a bit of, as it were, white paint and woad on him, and it just made him something different. But no, I didn't. He he wasn't an angel at all. Though people have read Angel Gabriel into it, but no, it's not. And we called him Cliff, yeah, which this didn't work in France at all. But we kept. I kept calling the other characters shadows, and there were three shadows. And I thought, well, he has to be Cliff. <laughs> and I kept, you know, I had an English cameraman, Justin, and uh, Justin and I thought this hysterical Cliff and the shadows. You know, this naked man with wings and these three nasty things. But the French didn't quite get it. <laughs> it's such a down-to-earth name for such an exotic character, actually. He's in Paris at the moment, the puppet. I miss him, actually. Do you still have Tchaikovsky with you? Because I, you, um, you, I, whenever I see, see you with Tchaikovsky, there's like a bond. It's like a child you carry around. It's, it's... Since the film, I've been asked to do 
a few live workshops with Tchaikovsky. And I did one in uh, Poland in front of a big audience. But I only had like um, 45 minutes to do something. And I thought, no, I can't do that with Tchaikovsky. I can't do something silly with him. I, oh, yes, on Plume, we were nearing the end of the shoot and the shadows had finished. And I came in one day and they'd been animated, not by me. And what was animated was quite silly and I got upset because I thought, well, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> and you have, to, you have to be true to the characters. Now, the thing I wanted about Tchaikovsky was to give him a dignity. And there was one shot, well, it was the end of a shot that we cut because we all looked at it and he just lost his dignity for a minute. And it was only about four seconds that I cut, which is all that's been cut from the film. He was just doing a gesture and it was trying to be a bit of Swan Lake wing flapping. He looked more like a turkey or something. So we cut it and it's better. Tchaikovsky keeps his dignity. What I'm pleased about with both Tchaikovsky and Bloom is um, I think you can see the thought process, which is very important. And I think that's our role. Our role as animators is to show the thought process. I, I like this idea that I give puppets life and then rather cruelly abuse the life, make them, you know, they suffer, Rigoletto suffers, poor Cliff is raped, uh, Tchaikovsky has this mental torment and cries and Cliff bleeds and mutilates himself. And that's sort of the nice irony with puppet people is you give them life and then you play with it and you're cruel about it and take it away. I think all my characters in all my films, other than the children's series, are really tormented characters. It's the sort of emotion that maybe other animators are, are not doing as I do, I don't know. But I think um, Tchaikovsky does look tormented. You can see him thinking, and I think really that's what we have to do as animators, is to show the internal mechanics of them. Do you agree with that? I do, yes. I, I remember your talk uh, at uh, Creative Calderdale. One of your, your your mantras is respect the puppets. That's um, yeah. that's very clear with yeah. yourself and, and your work. I mean, you could tell us, um, obviously, uh, how did Tchaikovsky come around as a project? I mean, is it always something that you wish to do? Is this the character that you always wanted to, to get behind and to, to, to uh, learn about? Well, I've loved his music. I've loved Swan Lake since I was four, which... Maybe I was a precocious child, but the music really strikes to me. It's very big, very melodramatic, and very emotional music. I've probably seen Swan Lake live 40 times or something. I don't know. Um, but I, I love it. I love it as a story. I love the emotion. And I think the last five minutes of, Ch of Swan Lake is probably, to me, is the greatest piece of music I've ever written. It's just, I can't sit down when it's playing. <laughs> it's just... And it makes me cry so much. And the swan tune with its haunting oboe theme is, is astonishing. But, you know, as I sort of got to know about Tchaikovsky, and I went to his house last October, and to actually be in his bedroom and touching his furniture and his the handrail and think, oh, God, this is... I'm there. I'm almost there with him. And a little bit of emotional meltdown while I was there. And he's such a tragic character. He had light-hearted stuff about him, but yes, he was a tormented genius. You know, to work with music like that, I, well, that was a gift. How the project happened was um, Irina Margalina um, is a Russian producer 
who's liked my work. Um, about 10 years ago, she asked me to go to Moscow to direct a play about Yasha Heifetz, the Jewish violinist. And I thought, darn, I know nothing about the Jewish faith. I can't play the violin, can't speak Russian. Whew, okay, I'm going to do it. How, how far outside my comfort zone can I go? And I agreed to do it. And then, sadly, Irina's husband, who was behind the project, died. And we lost momentum, but we kept in touch. Um, and uh, she started this series called Tales of the Old Piano about classical composers. The others in the series are mainly CG, and they do have thousands of you know, colourful backgrounds and characters, and, and um, which you can do in CG. You know, the budget was small and only allowed me one puppet, and I only had 13 minutes. I thought, oh God, this is good and bad, because how can I do justice to Tchaikovsky with just one puppet? It was difficult. I thought, how do I bring in the other characters? that are so important to his life. And I thought, well, we had some early black and white photos of him and photography and film was just lurking. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I could afford some projections. And so projections became the way into the other characters. And so I developed this sort of memory piece. Like a lot of my films, like Next, I guess, um, it's somebody justifying his life, his existence being judged, oh, is that me? Who knows? Yes, and it's <laughs> in all the films, apart from the wins, there's always somebody watching, guiding, judging. Screenplay, there's the narrator sat outside the action, watching and guiding. In um, Rigoletto, there are the um, the two assassins who are watching, guiding the action towards it. They're outside the court, they're guiding the action. In Achilles, we've got the chorus watching and guiding the action and judging. In Gilbert and Sullivan, we have doily carts. So that's a common theme of, of being judged and you know the whole thing about the creative process and is it good enough and am I good enough and all that sort of stuff. Um, so Tchaikovsky sort of became a film about me as well. He's, he's certainly somebody I can understand. I've never tried to commit suicide like he has, but uh, we've been down, but we've got through it. And he didn't think his work was good, and I don't think my work is as good as it could be, or I call that word potential, I don't know. I, I could not turn down a film about Tchaikovsky at all. And what was funny about um, the series, um, the other composers are Vivaldi, Beethoven, Mozart, Rossini, Schumann, Prokofiev, and Bach. And when Irina asked me about three years ago in Annecy, I thought, oh, which composer comes to mind? And she wrote the name down, and I wrote the name down, that was both Tchaikovsky. I did Brilliant. have a standby, just in case, which was um, Handel. Although you, you, you managed to uh, really skillfully fit an entire 53-year-long lifespan into just 13 minutes, is there anything that you would like to have included in the film yes. that, that, you, that you did not have an opportunity to? Yes. Much more music. I only hint at... Uh, the operas and things. He wrote eight operas and much more music, but also his complex relationships were very complex. And I mean, 13 minutes, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous, but um, I think I gave a hint of his character. I, think. I did do my research and um, have a look at next time, the way he conducts. He's holding the baton in a slightly unusual way. And people said, that's odd. And I said, well, I'm afraid that's how he held it. Um, most people 
conductor's hold it between the thumb and forefinger. He's holding it in a clenched fist, and apparently that's how he conducted. And you have to be quick in the film. But at one point, he tears a piece of the manuscript that he's conducting from and eats it. He just puts it in his mouth. And apparently that's what he used to do when he got agitated. he rip up pages and start to eat them. Oh, wow. Lots of strange, quirky things like that. And, um, yeah, his marriage, that deserves a whole film. Well, Mr. Ken Russell got there first. I think, Steve, what I wanted to say about Tchaikovsky more than anything is, okay, your life was complicated, but Swan Lake will always be here. Almost like a thank you, then, in the end. Like a thank you note to him. Yes, yes, it is. Like next, uh, you've obviously got a great passion for the character. Next, it was Shakespeare, uh, Tchaikovsky. It's well, clearly Tchaikovsky. Are there any other uh, figures that you would like to yeah. animate? Yes, and unfortunately, ha, I've been beaten to it. Is Georges Méliès? <laughs> I've been obsessed with Méliès for so long, and uh, unfortunately, Scorsese has got there before me. Hugo. Yes, which I'm going to go and see tonight. I don't know whether that will stop me. I've, I've wanted to make a film, not a biography of Méliès, but what I love about Méliès is um, he was this mad, joyous genius, and then he got forgotten and abandoned and was reduced to selling toys in a station, and only just before he died did his work get rediscovered and stuff. And, you know, I don't want to draw any parallels, but it's a story I can understand. And I think that's sad that such a genius should have been abandoned and overshadowed. And, you know, I have to say about Melios, most of us animators owe everything to him. What I love is his total infectious joy in his films. They're utterly beguiling and charming, and they're not deep, they're not profound, but they're sheer joy of life and giving life to inanimate objects and and he uses all the tricks of substitution and replacement that we use as an animation, as animators, you know. Um, and sometimes he does use some basic animation. But, you know, he does stop the frame and tinker with the space in between the frame, which we do. He's derided a bit these days, which just because the films are so frivolous and, and, uh, and I think we should respect him a bit more. I like the idea of him and Harry Houdini doing a stage act together because Houdini was also into illusion but much more intense and portentous and pretentious and they had many interests they were both obsessed with flying and underwater scenes and all that sort of stuff and they were contemporaries and as far as I know they never met but whether it will happen now with uh, uh, Hugo I don't know but there are lots of characters I'd like to make Verdi I'd like to do a film about Stephen Sondheim you know, people ask me, who are my great heroes? I think they do expect me to say Ray. And I do say Ray, but so do a million other people say Ray. Hmm. I have to confess, I don't have the dinosaur gene. But yes, Ray is, of course, a hero. But I think my heroes are Stephen Sondheim, who wrote such great American musicals where he takes great icons and looks behind them. I think his masterpiece is... Uh, a musical called Sunday in the Park with George, which takes the Seurat painting, Sunday Afternoon on the Isle of the Grand Jatte. It's a beautiful, beautiful musical about the creative process and leaving things behind and families and stuff. And so Sondheim is one. And um, another great hero is Ken Russell, who died two weeks ago. Mm. And we shared a birthday. Um, but, you know, 
uh, his his great films of the 60s and 70s of Women in Love, uh, Music Lovers, Tchaikovsky, of course, um, Marla, um, The Boyfriend, The Devils, fantastic visual man who used metaphors in a way nobody's used metaphors before. And, and I think, well, I love the film The Boyfriend that has an amateur theatre company putting on a musical. We get their backstage story, and then we get the musical story, and then sat in the audience as a Hollywood producer, imagining how he would make a film of it. And you suddenly get all these characters cross-referencing each other on so many levels and layers, and it's it's a joy, and it's an underrated musical, I think. But So I, th I think my heroes are people who are deal with the creative process and you know animation isn't real and it can't be by the sheer technical process of it it cannot cannot be real and I don't think it should be I think it should be like theatre and opera and ballet that um, glorifies in its artificiality you know I always go on about War Horse as being one of the most iconic important productions in the last 10 years or so uh, and it's got a puppet <laughs> held by three operators on the stage. And yet it reduces people to tears every night. You know, I think the power of the artifice we must not underrate. We like the process, we like to see how the trick works. And sometimes, you know, CG can take that away because it's so slick, it's so cold sometimes. Um, maybe we lose the pencil lines, maybe we lose the sculpting of the puppets, and we're not quite sure what we're watching. I'm quite happy to see one man standing on stage telling me a story. I, I hate the literal in storytelling, the curse of the literal. And I do a lot of amateur theatre, and sometimes my theatre company um, build beautifully realistic sets on stage, and they get a round of applause, and I just cringe. Mm. And to me, that's wrong. I think theatre is a place of being free with metaphor and, and uh, storytelling, not about reproducing real life. And, uh, but then people say, but I'd like to see real sets on stage. And I go, well, actually, you know, it's three sides of a room with a fourth missing. All the characters are turning out stage, out front talking, and they talk in neatly constructed. It's not realistic, you know, and I think we should enjoy that. Um, yeah. Uh, your two new films were produced outside the UK. I mean, is it increasingly difficult for you to find funding for films in the UK? I mean, would you? I mean, we're talking about making a film about about Meliers and, and Houdini, which would be wonderful because obviously it would fit you perfectly with them being yeah. obsessed with wings yeah. and things. I mean, you can't not do it now. You've told us, Barry. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, how uh, would you go about well, well, there, it? There is interest in it, but it's not from England. No, no. I think short films are pretty much. Well, big budget short films are certainly gone. You know, there doesn't seem to be much funding for development and, and, uh, in all the arts, basically. Um, but having said that, having been doom and gloom, and, you know, we are doom and gloom that things like Bob the Builder died and Cosgrove Hall, the studios got pulled down two weeks ago and we lost Mark Hall, which was very sad. Um, the studios just rubbled now. And I went to see it this time last week and I and a little cry outside the building. And it's going to be a nursing home, and I gather the uh, builders who were destroying it had no idea 
of the history of the building. It was just the building to them. But it is going to be a common nursing home. And I'm going to try and write to the company to ask, please name the rooms, Toad Hall, Greendale, <laughs> Cockleshell Bay, Penfold Suite or something. It would be really lovely if all the rooms were named after the characters of Cosgrove Hall. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that would be lovely. I mean, um, I'm not entirely sure Toad Hall for a nursing home would, uh, <laughs> would be... Well, I'd, I'd be happy to end up in Toad Hall. That would be a lovely gesture, wouldn't it, if that, if that were to yeah. go ahead? Oh, uh, God, I owe everything to Cosgrove Hall. Mark Hall, particularly. Mm. And, uh, I was in Poland very happily getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, which was very nice, from a festival in Krakow. Congratulations. Well, it was for my sort of work with students, which is very nice, and I dedicated it to Mark because um, I didn't have any training. And um, best training for anybody is for somebody like Mark Hall to say, right, here's a job, you're on production now. It's a, it's a nice story how he started with the letter. Can you tell us a bit about that when you wrote a letter to... Um, well, I was working in theatre and I'd got a job in Pitlockery, which is where my father's family are from, which is my symmetry um, and I was on the train going up to Pitlockery for nine months and um, I was reading the TV Times and there was an article about Chorlton the Wheelies, this animation company that had set up in Chorlton which is where I'd just been living for heaven's sake and I had no idea they were there and I saw, I, so when I got to Scotland I um, watched an episode of Chorlton the Wheelies and it made me laugh enormously but I thought these characters aren't really performing. They're sort of wobbling when they talk, and their moustaches are twitching when they talk. And, but I don't know, there was some sort of performance lacking. So in absolute arrogance, I wrote to Mark Hall, wrote this eight-page letter, saying, I think I can get some performance out of those characters. What I didn't say was I'd never actually touched a puppet in my life, but I did understand performing and timing and gestures and body language. And in a touch of kismet, fate, and he said, well, actually, I'm in Pitlockery next week on holiday with the family. Do you want to meet? And I went, God. Wow. <laughs> where my mouth is now. And I had sort of been doing some drawn animation, but I think Mark was impressed with my thinking of how to solve problems and how to do this and, and and we got on tremendously as friends and uh, and he said well when you finish at Pitlockery and I had another job to go to uh, had a tour of the boyfriend funny enough um, he said when you're done with all that come and do an audition and I did an audition and it was okay and I started and I was straight into production on I think Chawton the Wheelies and um, yeah 34 years ago that was Blimey. Yes. And you know what, Steve? I've never been bored <laughs> in those 34 years. I've been frustrated, I've been angry, uh, been disappointed, exhilarated, but I've never been bored once. I don't think I'm there's not... many people who can say that in, uh, in many other jobs. Um... No, I love it. And uh, you've got to have the mindset that... Uh, you are only going to shoot eight seconds or ten seconds that day. But hey, what a great eight seconds. 
and some people just don't have that ability to think like that, um, or they don't have the ability to solve problems, or or um, or get frustrated by the fiddliness of animation. But if that works for you as it does for me, then go for it. Excellent. Well, thank you very, very much for talking to Squiggly today, Barry. It's absolutely fascinating to, to take a walk through your new films and your past history as well. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. Was Barry Purvis there? Yeah, he kind of took you to task a bit. Just just a little bit, yeah. Just did you, cringing did you, over that one, yeah. Have you since seen the film? Was it? I didn't have a choice, really, did I? <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel like I have to now. Yes, I, yeah. <laughs> First Men in the Moon. What, you haven't seen it? You <laughs> need to go and see this film. <laughs> yeah, he, he is. He is kind of right. It is a little bit of. It is a little bit disappointing. Um, First Men in the Moon compared to some of uh, Ray Harryhausen's other works, such as One Million Years BC, mm. uh, Clash of the Titans, etc. Is it earlier or? It was made in 1964. So one of his lesser known works, then, on the whole. But nonetheless, one that you should all watch now that Barry's told me to watch it. Well. We all learned something today. <laughs> and I, that's the whole point of this, is to learn. Thank you, Dr. Purvis, for putting me right. <laughs> Great to see him still making films. You know, it's, it's such a rough time to keep that train a-moving. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see both of them. Because, um, as we discussed before, st- there's a, a quality, I think, just, I guess, because of his relationship with the uh, puppet makers. McKinnon and Saunders. That's right, yeah. Just fine fine detail really you know wonderful character um and a sense of performance just really matches them really well you know i remember when i saw his other work for the first time it was a few years ago and it was sort of a bunch of them in a row i kind of felt a little depressed because i realized puppets were having more sex than i was (laughs) especially in achilles that gets quite steamy yeah yeah he doesn't shy away from uh from that sort of performance does he Oh, definitely. I mean, I think also the the point he made about Melier. I mean, it's, it's sort of a shame that he's kind of dissuaded himself at this point. I, you know, I haven't seen Hugo, but uh, I'm not sure what kind of overlap there really would be. I I have seen Hugo, and I think that Barry should just go ahead and make the film, right. or a producer should to turn up to his house with a big sack of money, throw it at him, and say, "Make a Melier's and Houdini mm. film," because I'm sure Barry would do justice to his hero. The the film Hugo. I think the last third was my favourite because it sort of went through Melier's films and, and how he sort of made them. But the rest of the film is just about a, a boy running around his station being chased by allergy. Right. You know, there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing else in it, really. I'm not sure if people are as dismissive of Melier's as, as he suggests. I, I see homages to his work and, and those, you know, those very charming camera tricks, you know, and, and so many things, adverts, music videos... It's not timeless, but that's sort of the point. You know, it's it's evokes an era of very ambitious, pioneering, simplistic, but quite magical filmmaking. When you hear of someone, you know, who has an idea for something and it excites you and you get visions of your head and what it could be. And I think of the, the Gilbert and Sullivan uh, tableau he put together. The texturing on the puppets and the way they interacted with each other. You could sort of see a film kind of in that vein, but with, you know, the, the two visionaries interacting or whether it would be more about the process you know so yeah i'm kind of i'm i'm intrigued and i kind of i want to see that happen yeah yeah so you know do it i'm sure (laughs) yeah i'm sure you're listening barry do it go on (laughs) uh we've been very lucky uh this month we've made two friends focal press and ava academia they've both sent us some books some of barry's books 
So we've got stop motion, passion, process and performance on focal press. We've also got basics animation stop motion by AVA. Both these books written by Barry Perth. They both have the main title, Stop Motion, although they're, they're quite different books. Uh, one, uh, Passion, Process and Performance, goes more, I guess, into his personal experience and uh, kind of an autobiographical element to it. And Basics Animation, I guess, is more about the uh, the fundamentals of, of the craft of stop motion. If you're into the stop motion side of things, I think both of them have their virtues. Uh, if you're interested in winning both of these fine publications, uh, we've got a little quiz, a little question. Mm. Um, if you can answer this question, it's an A, B or C question. Which one of Barry's personal films does not contain his wing motif? So which one of the films does not contain the wing motif? Mm -hmm. Is it A, Plume? Is it B, Achilles? Or is it C, Next. Go to the website, find the page, click A, B, or C, and you could be winning the books. Provided you click the right answer. Provided you click the right answer. I think it's a real concern of mine that, that I'm alloyed to this, this organization that seems to want to take the best of different cultures and suck them up and then spit them out to something that's like a hamburger. It's really not what I want to do. I don't think that's what they want to do, really, if they think about it. Something kind of interesting that surfaced just after podcast number one, and there was a write-up of it on uh, uh, Cartoon Brew and various other animation websites that so were all very eager to see it. It's uh, quite an old documentary, I guess about 10 years old now, Yeah. Um, called The Sweatbox. And uh, very, very fascinating. It's sort of acknowledged as a, a film that Disney don't want the general public to see, although I suspect that's kind of a romanticized notion. It's, I don't really know what the politics behind it are. Well, it, 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 was, a, it was a documentary made by Sting's wife, because it was, it was mm -hmm. basically, it's a documentary based on Kingdom of the Sun, which later became The Emperor's New Groove. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it shows the process of making a film. I mean, anyone watching it would really... Um it's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's torturous in a way, not in terms of, of the way the documentary is structured, but in terms of watching what these people go through on a production that, with the benefit of hindsight, seems doomed from the outset, but you're watching these people really believe in an idea that just can't get off the ground. And so they have to reconfigure it and, and make it something more, you know, commercial or really just sort of make it work more as a film. I, don't, I think it was more about the structure issues and the subject matter. For me, so much of the movie isn't working. I just don't know who I'm supposed to care about, what I'm watching. The pace seems really, really wacky, like just so leaden. And I'm not having much fun. I think, and I'll, I'll forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think Disney liked to shy away from people thinking that it's it's hard to make a film it doesn't yeah. they like to make it look easy yeah i mean there's yeah I mean, there's all sorts of apocrypha sort of surrounding the uh the the disney empire and maybe i should watch what i say less you know besuited men and mickey mousey has come over here and beat the crap out of me but i think it's it's like there's that sort of legend that you know if, if you die at disneyland the paramedics have to escort your body off the premises before you can be pronounced dead because no one dies at disneyland <laughs> that's a very fun thing to believe i, I doubt it's true if you go on, if a, you go on snopes.com there's some fantastic rumors yeah, and yeah. things yeah <laughs> some of them are true actually it's fantastic the whole thing of, of 
I guess Disney being protective of an image. I don't, if that is it, I don't really get it because it's, this seems like the kind of documentary that to me would work really well as a supplemental feature on the Emperor's New Groove, like the Blu-ray or the DVD. Like it's the kind of making of. I think know. I think they did turn it into a, a, a documentary feature, but heavily cut. Heavily, ah, okay. heavily, they, you know, they, they made it just about Sting making the music. So know, they used than, the footage. Yeah, Sting and took it, out the. Yeah, right. yeah, it took a bit the bit where the animators are pulling the hair out and screaming yeah. and, and wondering if they're all going to get fired. You know, there are certain things where okay, there's like language issues that you know. Okay, you couldn't really put that on the kids. Like it's you know, at one point, um, David Spade comments. I liked it when I was. What was my old one? Manco. Manco. Yeah, why did they change Manco? I think um, it means um, pussy in Japanese, and that's not what bothered them. Um, it means bad movie in Turkish, and they didn't want that. Yeah, like you couldn't have that be, you know, part of um, part of a, a documentary, like a sort of for a family audience. And Sting does swear a lot, but you could bleep it out. Where's Jordy? Is supposed yeah, to swear yeah. a lot? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and it's sad seeing you know the, the producer and the director being so invested in the idea from the offset, and just realizing that in an incremental way, this idea I have that I really, really like. I'm not gonna make, it's not gonna, oh, whoa, no, 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 wait. Actually, it's, it's looking like it, oh no, no, it's gone. And then it's just sort of that, that gradual taking it away. Yeah. You know? um, that's a, that's sad to see. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like being rolled over with a steamroller and then you get up sort of paper thin and try to blow yourself back out into proportion where you can work again. Um, it's kind of par for the course a little bit on these pictures, but it's always hard to, you know, see the sand castle be knocked down and, uh, start thinking about how to make it better. But that's basically, you know, what's good about the process is we go through these things and the weak stuff gets weeded out and you, and you just have to keep strengthening and strengthening the foundation of your story and all that. And you hope against all hope every time you go in the process of making these that you will avoid this step, whether it be Lion King or Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin. When you look at this, it is really the part of the process. You have to go through the, the moment of failure of oh my god it doesn't work to actually find out what does work but it makes sense mm. you see why like the the it's not like executives coming in and saying oh well we can't have this because it's it won't sell enough toys or mm. we can't have this because you know it's not pc it's it's they're making quite grounded realistic decisions based on the elements that didn't work the movie shouldn't end with him have learned the lesson only to relocate his hideous palace. He shouldn't, he should learn not to make a hideous palace mm -hmm. in the countryside. The thought occurs, you know, way back in the back of the Is this too much? Whoops, this is really is close to the edge. Could we cross the line? Yeah, uh -huh. I think it's a good note. Thank God that they got a decent film out of it. When you think of the nightmare of the cobbler and the thief, from what I can tell, that was a very, very filtered. Well, they're, they're basically they sent off the film to be finished abroad. Uh -huh. Richard Williams spent 30 years of his mm. life and his money um, his own money so he'd make money from commercials and instead of buying a mansion he'd put it into this personal project yeah. you know and he was going to create the, the best film going and what happened is he got so far with it uh, he got a promise from a studio of money to finish the film he'd already given up but he got a promise of money to finish the film mm. and then they obviously owned the rights to the film and said it's not the, you know they started looking at the watches and saying yeah. well, where's this film when are you going to finish this masterpiece and uh, they, in the end they took it off him and Got it finished just, abroad. Yeah, Changed. It's a waste. 
It is really mm. a waste of 30 years of wonderful experiment. And this, this film, had it been completed, it would have knocked everyone's socks off. It looked fantastic. I think any film has had that kind of lifespan within the animation world because of course the technology changes so frequently mm. my father worked on the yellow submarine which is this crazy old beatles film that i'm sure everyone is familiar with um and the production studio was at soho square where richard williams was i think in the the early stages of production on on thief of the cobbler although i don't think it was called that then i I think it was just sort of known as this film he was doing you know about the sufi religion and people were even back then, you know, he had a strong reputation, you know, stuff like Charge of the Light Brigade, and people respected him enormously. And people, I think, were fascinated by this, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, vanity project that he'd managed to get off the ground and couldn't fathom how it was going to get finished without, you know, proper funding. And so to cut to all those decades later and to see, oh, something came of it, but, ugh, yeah, you know. So at the very least, when you think of something like, you know, the, the lifespan of the Emperor's New Groove, and when you look at the product at the end of it, and it's not a complete mess. It's not what you had in mind, but it's a laugh. It's watchable. People enjoy it. People dig it. They didn't really seem to explore the opinion of the final product from the, you know, the original director and writer's point of view. No. Um, I would have been quite interested to see that, whether they, they would have conceded that actually it did turn out okay in the end. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure it'd have been modest enough. Mm. I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't have been a God, it's a pile of crap. It wouldn't have been that, would it? But this is this is the thing, the, the mystery of, of pre-production and development, really. Mm. From a finish from a finished point of view, you you have no idea when you're watching a final product, you have no idea what uh, what would have gone on before. And that I think that's what's so uh, it's like dissecting it, isn't it? Looking yeah. at the pre-production. That's what's so mesmerizing about looking at line tests and character development and things like that. That's what I find fascinating. Mm. And that's what this documentary gives us the chance to do. I don't know if this is a popular or unpopular opinion. I think The Emperor's New Groove is one of the best modern Disney films. I like it because it doesn't have any songs. That was always why I liked it so much. And it doesn't have a love story. It's just a cartoon where cartoony things happen and it's funny. And those are the elements of Disney movies that I like. Sometimes the music is great, you know, and sometimes it's it's... I mean, yeah, what was your sort of take on, on how that film turned out in the end? Oh, it's enjoyable, just as enjoyable as, well, maybe not as enjoyable as some of the, the best Disney cl uh, classics, but uh, still a, a very watchable film. I mean, like like uh, many from that era, I don't know what the the problem was. Well, I do know what the problem was. The problem was money. But, mm. um, I mean, I enjoyed Brother Bear. You know, it was a, it, they were good films. Hmm. I mean, the only thing that spoiled Brother Bear, perhaps, was Phil Collins all the way through it, but, you know, <laughs> you can't have everything. You know, I, I, you know, I don't want to alienate the, the portion of, of the squiggly listenership that are Sting fans, and I, I like a bit of Sting from time to time. I'm not sure if I'd want to watch a whole film populated by his music. And it did seem like, you know, a lot of it was Sting songs, just kind of tailored a little bit to you know, certain ethnic influences and whatnot. And, and I mean, the, the main love theme was pretty much an Englishman in New York. Like, it was arranged in exactly the same way. The vocals come in and really, you know, it's like, okay, well, you're going to see a Sting musical, and, and it's odd to think, knowing what I know about how the film turned out, that that was ever an element of it. And it's interesting to see, you know, the things that, that did stay throughout, seeing, you know, how David Spade's character was fundamentally the same. I thought it was brilliant that they kept Eartha Kitt in it, because she was really what sort of made that film mm. kind of whole. 
Uh, and I thought it was a great idea to bring someone like John Goodman in because he's... I mean, we were talking last podcast about, like, when we were talking about pirates, how it's really... If you're going to have names be your cartoon voices, have them be people who can do that. And everyone yes. in, in New Groove, you know, whatever your opinion is of David Spade, he did that character perfectly. It's sort of... He, he was snotty and you wanted to punch him and you wanted him to get his comeuppance. And yeah. that's what the whole film is about. And, you know... Uh, John Goodman, you know, is, has a voice mm -hmm. that works very well, and he doesn't have to change it really. It's just it it, it suits the characters they give him. Yeah, oh, it's interesting to see. Um, did you notice Owen Wilson was in it as well? Who was he originally? Uh, was I think he was the originally brother? the brother who was going right. to be the because um, the, they were twins. And they were twins. It was it, it, it looked the... a little bit like uh, Prince of the Pauper to begin with. Didn't right. it? The story from going by the documentary. Yeah, Owen Wilson missed out, but then later became. Uh, Lunchbox superstar yeah, Lightning things, McQueen, didn't he? Things might work out for him yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope so. But um, what's interesting about the, the Sweatbox documentary and what I liked about it was, you know, you saw uh, people like Andreas Deja talking about uh, animating the characters and, mm. and, and things like that, which if you're going to do a documentary about animation, that's what I like to see. Yeah. I like to see pencil tests. I, like, I love pencil the, tests. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. That's like porn. Yeah. <laughs> A good yeah. pencil test of a scene I'm familiar with. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. me all a quiver. <laughs> and also, you know, the music side of things, like bringing in, you know, Mark Scheinman and then firing him quite quickly afterwards because he, he just wasn't getting it. And this was like a, a real veteran of, you know, uh, film scores. It's odd to see that, you know, sort of happen. And he's very humble about it. It's like, well, you know, it wasn't a fit. If you are... Uh, interested in in the music and things uh, Disney released a documentary themselves called Waking Sleeping Beauty I believe it's it's Don Hahn and Peter Schneider mm -hmm. um, producer and, and, and president I think he was at the time um, sort of answering back to these sort of documentaries and a book called Disney War by James B. Stewart it's like a, a response to that really and it's, uh -huh. it's Disney telling Disney's story they do present that in a sort of sugar-coated way but I don't know if, is it, if you could really call it sugar-coated I mean they were friends with these guys, these guys so they are pretty honest with um with the likes of arguments and shouting and uh, and stuff and it's presented in a not in a talking heads fashion as such but uh, through documentary footage of from the time yeah. and through um, sketches and, and voiceovers and things it's you know it's, it's worth seeing it's a good documentary mm -hmm. uh, it's not quite as as um, candid as um, the sweatbox and it's not quite from the same point of view as your everyday animator as another documentary called Dream on Silly Dreamer by Dan Lund uh, which I would recommend highly. Mm -hmm. um, this documentary is about Disney, and it's done in a sort of a pastiche of the Disney style to begin with. Um, and it's basically about the day that all the 2D animators were told to pack up their things because Disney was going to 3D. Right. Uh, a fateful meeting in 2002, when the head of, of uh, animated features turned around and said to everyone in the audience, did you see how much money Ice Age made at the weekend? And from then on, everyone was told to pack up the things and, and go. Disney you know, no longer became the place for cartoons. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, that's where they had to start begin working on things like Chicken Little and um, Meet the Robinsons and things like that. For an animator to watch, it's such a um, a telling thing because it's presented in a pastiche style, you know. It, oh, everyone at school says you're great at drawing. What are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a Disney animator. Mm -hmm. 
you cannot believe it. It's so cool or extraordinary. This process is absolutely magical. We do animation things here. We make miracles come to life. These animators are, are magicians, they're artists. That was always a great work ethic. This passion on every single frame. I get paid to sit down and draw. You know, and it's it's taking the Mickey out of the viewer who wants to be a Disney animator or, or who want who wonders what it's like being a Disney animator. There's not a, a grain of sugar on this. If if Waiting Sleeping Beauty is a love letter to Jeffrey Katzenberg, then Dream on Silly Dreamer is hate mail. Right. It's that it's that simple. It's both fantastic documentaries. So there's like Sweatbox sort of full somewhere in between then? Yeah, I think they're well, I would say that they're all three corners of a triangle of, right. uh, of documentary that you could uh, that you can watch. Be interesting, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see the other two just to get that sort of fuller picture mm. and see, you know, what, how you know the sort of Disney side of things, how they want to sort of represent their take on it and compare it to the other two. It did seem certainly that the Sweatbox was quite impartial, and whether or not that's, I mean, I just think that's a sort of crucial thing for people to be exposed to. It is good to to see the positive side and good to see the the negative side, but alongside one another. It's not a very healthy impulse to just be like, okay, I don't want to believe that Disney is anything other than a perfect, wonderful working environment, so I'm going to watch this one. Mm -hmm. Or I really, you know, Disney have always rubbed me the wrong way, so I'm going to watch this one. I think it's sort of much better to get like a, a overall view of things and then kind of form your own opinions, you know. And you know that your own, you know. If you are lucky enough to somehow magically get hold of a copy of the Sweatbox mm -hmm. through magical means, it was pulled off YouTube quite quickly. But you know, YouTube isn't the only game in town, so there's, there's, there are ways. If um, if you are watching the Sweatbox, then you should really uh, watch the other two documentaries as well. Mm -hmm. They're available on on iTunes, which uh -huh. you may have heard of. On our first podcast, we interviewed Fraser McLean, author of Setting the Scene, an incredible book about layouts. Very thorough guy. In fact, we cut the interview in two. Uh, we're going to bring you part two now, in which Fraser talks about working with the Animation Research Library, uh, the Disney archives, basically, where they keep all the old artwork and layouts, mm -hmm. uh, the Chuck Jones Library, the Pixar Library, uh, how to put together all that work. He also talks about interviewing uh, Brad Bird and uh, the very special gentleman who he pays tribute to in the book. So here is the second part of that interview. Did you find it a challenge to pin down the actual concept of layouts? Obviously, television is different to to uh, film, you know, with different budgets and different challenges. I mean, how did you find that? I mean, structure-wise for a book? I gave up on trying to impose a structure fairly early on and decided that the sensible thing, because I had spoken to more than, I think it was over, eventually it was over 100 individual artists and technicians, I, I handed over uh, control in the early stages of the research and went to the layout people and said, what do you want? this book to say? What do you want to be in the book? A lot of the individual historians have personally collected a lot of original artwork over the years. So the way that I approached it was letting the individual artists and technicians tell me what the problems were they had had to solve and explain how they were solved. And where possible, go to an archive or to a private collection and find artwork that once you put it onto a page, it itself would indicate how that sequence or scene came together so that you had, when you were reading the book, my hope was that students reading it would hear 
the voice of an actual practitioner coming from the interview material and as close by as possible on the page, they would have images that uh, supported that part of the story or the process and you would have both the, the personal verbal account of it and the pictorial account to try and uh, cement the deal as it were. You did mention obviously um, traveling for the book and, uh, and visiting certain places. You, you traveled to um, the Walt Disney Animation Research Library and, and, and other places. What is that place like to, to, to obviously, it's not open to the public, it's not open to you know, you can't just waltz in. I mean, uh, That's right. how do you begin to find the right material and, and, and what was the experience like in the archives? Well, I uh, was very fortunate because having worked for Disney, you go through uh, an employee induction process where they take you through all of the uh, formalities of filling in the paperwork to become an employee, but they also take you on a tour of the, the, the lot at, at Bur the Burbank Studios. And at that stage... Um, Part of the thing was that you would go to the animation research library and you would get to meet the curator, one of the curators, and see some of the artwork. Uh, it's since expanded uh, the the ARL at, at Disney, and the the work they do is quite extraordinary. I knew that the process of putting the story of the development of layout together, the book couldn't be done unless it was built primarily on evidence of the, the, the process at Disney. In the 1990s, the software like Animo, uh, available from a, a, an outside provider, gave the opportunity for other companies to enter into competition with Disney for the production of uh, feature-length animated films. It wasn't that Disney was the only company that had ever produced a feature-length animated movie up until the 1990s. But in global terms, for a global audience, even those films were not yet widely known in the West, the Disney movies were known all the way around the world. The exhibition and distribution of the movies, the, the Disney feature movies, had for so many people defined animation. And I knew that the book, uh, that had to be the, the, the cornerstone of it. So the first thing was to approach the Animation Research Library and see if they would, if Disney were happy for the project to, 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 to go ahead and if they would help us. And I was just very, very lucky that they were so enthusiastic and so supportive. And that, of course, translated into the help that we got from the, the Pixar archive as well. The wonderful thing about that process and also the interview um, process, everywhere I went, people were giving me more phone numbers and more email addresses. And I lost track of how I got in touch with people. The Chuck Jones Center for Creativity were magnificent. Uh, Marion Jones and uh, Linda um, Jones-Clough welcomed me immediately, made original Chuck uh, character layout drawings available, just completely put their shoulder to the wheel and said, what can we do to help? Uh, the same at Sony, uh, the same at the University of Southern California where they had these um, Warner Brothers collections of material that Warner's now also owns the, the old MGM artwork for the Tom and Jerry and Tex Avery stuff. Early on there had been a suggestion that we would maybe try and make it an, an entirely global project and we would include uh, some of the Japanese uh, approach to layout. So I did travel to Tokyo and I met with the people at Studio Ghibli who were tremendously courteous and had recently had a very successful exhibition of uh, layout work um, that uh, Miyazaki-san and his team had uh, created. But they, they felt that the Japanese approach 
was so different and so idiosyncratic, and it would be so important not to try and uh, bend that to fit into the shape left over by what we spoke about on the, the American or European side, that I felt really that this was something that would have to be a separate book. Uh, but they were tremendously courteous and supportive. The book is um, its as wonderfully detailed word-wise as it is picture-wise. Did you have any particular favourite images out of all of them to pick, which you sort of were particularly happy to have found or to have come across? There were some really exciting things. Uh, it's only recently that the Walt Disney Family Museum at the Presidio in San Francisco have renovated the Herman Schultheis notebooks and uh, they very kindly uh, agreed to allow two of those images to be included. And I, I think that's the first time they've been published. And that was of the, what they called the universal multiplane, which was the horizontal rig where the camera moved on rails through the levels for the, they used it on sequence two, scene one in Pinocchio. Those images were wonderful. The original um, character layout drawings that uh, uh, Joe Barbera had done that Mark Kausler had, it was lovely to get those. Um, Robert Cowan uh, in Colorado, a private collector of animation artwork, provided uh, an absolutely gorgeous pair of watercolor background paintings from Old MacDonald Duck uh, short. And Chronicle were generous enough to allow a couple of gatefold images in the book. So the, the larger of the two, the downshot of Donald Duck's farm, just as a painting is such an extraordinary thing to be able to sit and enjoy and look at. Some of the individual photographs that were taken, for example, when they were doing the um, design for the interior of the house in Lady and the Tramp, there are some magnificent um, black and white photographs of these very, very specific and detailed architectural miniatures. And we were able to relate those to some of the cleaned up final background layouts. There's something like 371 separate illustrations. Some of the artwork that Luc de Marchelier did early on for his Spirit, Stallion of the Simmer and the, the, his drawings. There's, there's a lot of really exquisite artistry. You, you did conduct an awful lot of, of interviews. I mean, were there any particular interviews you thought were more memorable? I, I, Ahmed Amidi, when I met him in New, New York, uh, was tremendously kind, and he put me in touch with uh, with Victor Habush, with uh, Ray Aragon, uh, eventually with Brad Bird. Um, I was actually at one of the other studios on the afternoon uh, when it proved possible to have a 15-minute telephone conversation with Brad Bird. And I had my questions prepared and we were chatting away. And after about 25 minutes, I, I had to stop him and I said, look, I'm terribly sorry, but I formally only have 15 minutes of your time and I'm really, I, I don't want to, to, to go over the, the limit. He, he's, he was in the middle of being very, very um, passionate and descriptive about one particular uh, part of the process that was really important to him to do with geography when you're establishing the geography of a location or a set. And he started, he went, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, it's dark outside, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, there was just, can I say just one more thing? And it was, uh, he was kind of, uh, there was so much more that he wanted to say. So somebody as busy uh, as, as that, who was, you know, getting so carried away, that that was delightful. But I don't think there is really any competition. On my first research trip at the end of 2008, uh, Ahmed had put me in touch with Ray Aragon, but Ray had... Um, accidentally something had fallen on uh, his leg in his garage at home so 
our appointment to meet up had to be cancelled and I was lucky enough in uh, February of 2009 to go back so I went over to meet Ray at home and Ray was just he just lit up um, and he lit up himself but he lit up the the history of it and his experience of it and what an excitement and a thrill it was for him to get the opportunity to go and work at the Disney Studios and everything from his experiences during the war to working on Yellow Submarine in London in the 1960s. It was just such a fantastic experience. And when I asked him to describe to me how he would explain the layout process to students, he began on one of his desktops just with coffee mugs and and sugar bowls and things, moving stuff around and giving this explanation of making it that you believe you are a camera and you can see what the movie is going to look like in your head I then went back to the UK and it was just one of those awful, awful bits of, of timing. I had a, a box of shortbread and a card and just some, some thank you things to send over. I wanted to finish transcribing the interview with Ray and send these things over to, to himself and his wife and family to say thank you. And I had literally just finished transcribing the interview. I took my headphones off and I received an email to say that he had passed away. So. Ray sadly died five weeks after I interviewed him and I felt so fortunate to have had that opportunity to talk with him Uh, and uh, Lena, his wife, was so generous in allowing uh, Michael McClure, a photographer, to go back to the house to photograph uh, Ray's sketchbook work and his studio so that, again, the reader could have a sense of quite how magical and and informative and inspiring it was for me to go over and and, and meet Ray. And I think that would would stand out for me because I I just felt it was such a privilege to to have met him and to have spoken to him. There's a lovely tribute near the end of the book to to Ray, isn't there, with uh, with all his... A gorgeous out- artwork from from years of people watching and uh, watercolor sketches and things like that. And that was so lovely that there was the connection with Brad Bird because he and Victor Habush were kind of brought out of retirement uh, by Brad and Alison Abati, and they worked on the development process for Iron Giant. And here were these beautiful little uh, watercolors that he'd done in New England, and and then you have these little sketches that he'd done in coffee shops. In Strangely enough, he, he used to go to the, the Galleria shopping mall where I had been working on Space Jam, and he would sit and you know, draw people passing. So it was, and all of these sketches, he had all these sketchbooks lying around in his studio from the 40s, the 50s, and open at pages of drawings of the French landscape or drawings of Piccadilly Circus in the 1940s and the 60s. And it was just magical. Who knows, amongst the groaning shelves of, of sketchbooks that you've got in the book, maybe there's a picture of you walking to work that he sketched <laughs> when he was <laughs> people watching. Obviously, you, you have taught as well, uh, Fraser, but from a point of view, um, if, if, if a student was asking you this, what kind of lessons are often neglected in the field of layout after uh, so thoroughly researching it yourself and, and living it? I would say... Um, in college, there is very often the idea that the animator should be encouraged somehow to, to work alone. And I still, I, you know, I, this is beginning to change. More and more uh, college courses are encouraging uh, animation students to work collaboratively. They're also encouraging them sometimes as a legal requirement to do work experience. I know if you're studying in, in Austria, you can't complete your qualification unless you have done a minimum of two months of practicum in, in the industry. Um, in the same way that I 
cottoned on very early in, in what I was doing at, at college by making such a mess of the offline editing process, holding things up, delaying things, making things awkward and expensive because I didn't sit down and log where the different shots were on the different tapes of the original footage. The layout process, probably more than any other department in the production process, gives people an opportunity to get, I, I suppose, what the Americans call bang for your buck. Um, it's also, in terms of the, the narrative in a movie, however long it is, whether it's a, a two-minute film or an hour and a half, um, not every scene can be a car chase. I mean, it can be, but, you know, can people really watch that? Uh, not every scene can be just a two-shot. Uh, you have to kind of breathe in and out. There has to be a pattern to it. There have to be moments of excess, moments of tenderness, something that is tremendously ambitious uh, in terms of a, a great battle scene or something. Um, but the layout department actually gives you the ability ahead of time to work out how best to spend your resources in service to the story and the characters that the audience are supposed to care about and to feel involved with. So the importance of being able to design an environment or, as Henry Bumstead would have said, a character-driven set where just in the same way as you can see to it that the set is beautifully dressed and lit in support of the character, in support of the story, you can also see to it that the plan for the entire movie, for the whole project, is done in a sensible, disciplined way that says, okay, our best use of these resources to allow us to turn the dial up and down over the course of the narrative in terms of people feeling thrilled or excited or relaxed or suspenseful, uh, this is how we spend our money, this is how we use our resources. It'd be nice if people kind of thought of the accounting for movie making as part of the creative process, because it's what allows you to do these things in the first instance. And rather than seeing yourself in the sort of artistic group or the creative group in a studio and thinking, okay, well, you have all these bean counters and suits, I think it's much more important that people feel a sense of mutual respect so that what you're doing creatively, what you're doing organizationally, uh, these things work uh, in a complementary fashion. And it allows anybody and everybody in the process to see the full blueprint of what is going to be possible and to stand back from it and say, well, we need to do a little less here so that we can do a little more over there. You know, if it, if it really does work, it has that same beauty to it that, you know, when you open up a beautifully made watch and you see the mechanism, uh, that has to remain invisible and, you know, unappreciated most of the time. You just look at the dial of the watch. Uh, but the, the layout process, if it's used to, to, to its full advantage, means that people have an understanding of and a, respect, a healthy respect for what it is that's possible, uh, and they feel that they can contribute to that and, and look at it and say, yes, we can help to make this the best possible movie uh, by managing all of our resources sensibly. <laughs> Oh, thank you very, very much for uh, spending time talking to Squiggly today, Fraser. Congratulations again on the book, um, setting the scene, the art and evolution of animation layout. Thanks again for talking to Squiggly. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to come and uh, uh, come and say hi. <laughs> right, Fraser McLean there um, with setting the scene. Very uh, fascinating man, Fraser. Definitely. And it's out now from Chronicle Books, so check it out. 
We got uh, we got a list here by Tanya, who's one of the squiggly writers. She sent it in. I think it's quite funny. I think it's worth sharing with uh, with podcast people. See if they all all agree. Uh, it's basically it's a list of reasons why it's hard to live with an animator. I'm sure people will appreciate this. Now, in this list, is she the animator in question, or does she also live with a, a fellow animator? She is an animator. Uh huh. I'm assuming then that this is what she puts her uh, housemate or significant other through. I would imagine so. I opt for the the easier choice of just living alone, you know. I mean, the nights are longer, and it just seems so cold. But still. I'm on the list. Welcome back, welcome back then. (laughs) Uh, Okay. There's no envelope, scrap of paper, or important document in your house that hasn't been doodled on. You're the only adults without kids in line at every children's film. I think the hardest thing for a a 27-year-old single man Hmm. is to go to the cinemas to watch Princess and the Frog. (laughs) Just because you you want to see it because it's it's an animation. But people do give you... (laughs) You're doing it all wrong. You just make sure you sit at the back, wear a big trench coat, maybe something that covers your face so people don't see that you're a 27... No one's going to bat an eyelid. Yeah, no one's going to be scared then. Your house has so many toys in it that people assume that you have children. And if you do have children... They are not allowed to touch the toys. My apartment definitely at this point looks like a Forbidden Planet showroom. It's getting to the point where it's a matter of self-respect that I just don't let myself buy anymore. What I find sort of curious about like the whole merchandising of animation or, or, or old properties, things that are like 20 years old or 30 years old suddenly become, you see toy lines for them. You know, like like The Nightmare Before Christmas. Like, 15 years after that movie came out, that's when they started making the toys, and they made billions of them. You know, there are, you know, and all sorts of, not even toys, just like, you know, decor. It's like, there's sort of something, I guess, in the, the marketing department that has a mathematical equation of, okay, the kid who watched this this film when it was popular is now at an age where they're financially solvent. <laughs> so let's throw as many toys at them as we can. I think there's an audience of people who don't necessarily have a nostalgic relationship that will just buy this stuff ironically. And then there's the people like me who's like, ooh, I quite liked Ren and Stimpy, so I'm going to buy a Ren and Stimpy toy and not question it. It's just sort of a joy to have around. This is a good one. <laughs> not only do they have more books than any other person, but each one weighs the same as a small elephant. I love animation books. Mm. I absolutely, I've got... When they're good. Groaning shelves of animation books. <laughs> I have, I yeah, mine, I think, do literally groan. They're, all my bookshelves are now sort of U-shaped because they just sag in the middle with these hardback libraries of, you know. And nothing's better than, you know, just coming home with a big book and mm. just opening it and it's interesting and it's well laid out and, you know, it keeps the dogs from barking in my head for a few minutes as I enjoy it. Or, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> barking in your head. <laughs> But then, you know, by, by contrast, when, you, when you, know, you see something that looks really appealing in a, in a bookstore and then you take it home and then you open it up and it's, it's just, uh, they're saying nothing, but they're taking 600 pages, you know, 35 pounds to, you know, make that nothing point. Um, you feel a bit swindled. There have been some really, really amazing books uh, over the years. We have some reviews up on the website of some of the more standout ones. I think also that the sort of draw of certain specialist bookshops, I now have to make sure I don't go in them anymore. 
you know, culture museums or specialist bookshops, certain types of comic book stores that have the art section, things where, you know, it, it specializes in, you know, the creative industries and the visual arts or sound. Like, it's it's a sort of siren call of you walk in and it's what you want your bookshelf to look like. <laughs> Just full and, you know, loaded with all these interesting sort of volumes that you'll never have any time to read, but you'll look so cultured. Obviously, the next point is that you don't actually read any of the books. No. Oh, God, no. <laughs> They're there to look pretty. Uh, Polar Express scares you more than Friday the 13th. Definitely. Any one of those Uncanny Valley films, knock it off. <laughs> Just stop doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Billionaire. <laughs> I definitely have the kind of brain that fires off those impulses of, no, this is not right. It's kind of unsettling. That's the type of animation that I think would be very suited to horror because it has that kind of inherent vibe to it, you know. The soulless dead eyes. Yeah, yeah. That being said, if Spielberg wants to hire me, or Zemeckis. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mister Spielberg, Mr. Zemeckis. <laughs> I have very malleable morals. <laughs> the next point, you don't really know what mocap is, but if you ever like a cartoon that has it, they've threatened to leave you. I've never really been with anyone long enough for them to threaten to leave me over cartoons. One of the biggest, like, fights I've ever had in a relationship, like, proper yelling fights, was about the Roadrunner. And this fight has haunted me. I actually put it in a, in a comic book recently because I, I couldn't quite shake off the agony of it. And it was with an uh, older woman who, uh, I guess, didn't have the same kind of uh, uh, childhood fondness for the Roadrunner cartoons as I had. And her interpretation of the premise of the Roadrunner cartoons was that the Roadrunner was on its own in the desert being pursued by a gang of coyotes who had a series of, you know, whenever one of their plans backfired, it died. Like the rock would fall on it or it would fall off the cliff. And then one of the other coyotes would have a turn. <laughs> and it was just constantly being hounded by all the coyotes in this desert. And like, it's one coyote. It's, yeah. how, do you, how do you not know that? And she's like, shut up. How is he going to survive a fall that high? It's, like, it's not a f***ing David Attenborough <laughs> you dippy bitch. It's like... <laughs> leave! Leave now! Get out of my house! But it was one of those arguments that should have been like a, a three-sentence, no way you're out of your mind, end of discussion. One of us decided to, to push it. And when you argue about something where the argument isn't about whatever's going on, it's about something to argue, it became very important to this person that, no... It was actually about a bunch of coyotes and one red runner and not one. I was like, how the hell? The character has a name. Like, it's not like, and she's like, yeah, sure. Like, she did that move. It got to the point where I'm, I'm like, we're going to go online and look it up. I was like, oh, Jesus, if it has to be that big. It's a cartoon, Ben. <laughs> it's, it's quicker to dump her. Here's the gruesome punchline to that story. The reason we were talking about it was that we were watching, it was on TV. This particular episode ended with the coyote, Wiley Coyote, dressing up as a girl roadrunner. And it backfires on him when a thousand identical coyotes <laughs> appear out of nowhere and it ends with him running out of the door. Like, and she looks at me and goes, eh? <laughs> <laughs> what are the f***ing odds? So in conclusion, animators, all kind of sociopaths. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have your own contributions to this uh, this list, I could see it growing. Send in your own foibles, and uh, uh, we'll discuss those. That's at podcast at squiggly.co.uk. Maybe you've got a list of your own that you want to send in. It doesn't have to be about the nightmare 
living scenario that you're currently uh, trapped in. It could mm. be anything else. So if you've got a list or if you just want to contribute to the podcast, maybe you've got an event coming up or something that you'd like us to plug. Contact. Maybe you have hate mail. I, I, you know, I don't think we've gotten any so far. I'd quite like some of that. No, we've been quite lucky, but we're only on podcast two. Oh, yeah, that's true. So podcast at squiggly.co.uk. And now here's more from Colin Harding at the National Media Museum's In the Blink of an Eye exhibition. Right, so now we're upstairs in Gallery 2 of the museum. Uh, in this gallery, slightly smaller gallery, we have three main sections. First is called Stopping Time where we look at the notion of what photography enables us to do through fast exposures, you can actually freeze motion and stop time. And we have examples here, historic examples in the collection from the 1850s onwards. Now, of course, from the 1850s, exposure times were far too slow to enable the capture of movement. Um, so what happened was, if people moved during exposure, you got very strange ghostly effects. This first photograph is by Roger Fenton, taken in 1854, and it's a photograph of one of Queen Victoria's sons, um, Prince Arthur, and he's photographed here in a little military uniform, standing on a box. But what's interesting, by his side, you can see this ghostly figure of a woman, and it's actually his nursemaid, uh, who halfway through the exposure has come in to make sure he doesn't fall off this box that he's standing on, and then has been told to get back out of the frame. But because she's moved quite slowly, you can actually see this ghostly, so semi-transparent figure and um, so it's, it's lovely just to demonstrate just the problems associated with with long exposure times uh, in early photography this next sequence um, is about the idea of mid-air people jumping and we start off with a remarkable shot by American photographer Philip Hulsman uh, and it's the Duke and Duchess of Windsor there's a portrait of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and it looks slightly odd and then you realize it's doing special. If you look carefully, you can see that they're both actually in midair. They're, they're being photographed about a foot off the ground. Um, Philip Holzman created a whole series of portraits in the 1950s of celebrities jumping in midair, and he said that um, it, it created the sort of um, they made them relaxed and informal, and he called it jumpology. Um, and he managed to persuade people like Marilyn Monroe, Richard Nixon, and so on to take their shoes off and jump in midair to be photographed. So it's quite bizarre. Next to it, what we can do is juxtapose a contemporary image by Richard Villingham uh, from his series Raise a Laugh. Um, and again, what you actually have here, it's, it's his father is actually throwing the family cat across the room and he's being photographed, the cat is in midair. Again, it goes back to this idea of Marais photographed cats in midair to try and work out how they manage always to land on their feet if you drop them yeah. from a height. So again, it, it, it catches up with some of the earlier things that people have seen. And next to it, we have a, um, a press photograph by Terry Fincher um, for the Daily Herald newspaper, which we have in our, our archive. And it shows a kitten um, in midair jumping above a saucer of milk. So again, this idea of jumping. So it ties, ties things together. We also have some equipment in this gallery, where a chance to show some of the, uh, the technology alongside. So we have Scape's pistol graph from 1859, one of the first cameras to incorporate a, uh, a shutter, in this case um, powered by uh, a rubber band. And next to it we have Lucien Ball's high-speed spark drum camera from about 1906, used to photograph up to 2,000 pictures a second, so the idea of, of high-speed um, sort of spark flash photography. And behind this we also have the current state-of-the-art photo-finished camera. 
spy by links. So this is the sort of camera which is now used for uh, photo finish for um, motor racing circuits. Um, and it can actually take, I think this is something around 10,000 frames a second. So if two motor cars go past at 200 miles an hour, it can separate them by less than half an inch in terms of the first or second. Wow. So that's how far things have now advanced in terms of high-speed um, photo-finish cameras. On the screen in front of us, we've got um, a compilation. We've got some examples of high-speed uh, slow-motion video by the, uh, the slow-mo guys, splash photographs. Um, we've also got examples of time-lapse photography demonstrating how photography can speed up and slow down the world and it can actually reveal things which are invisible to the naked eye. In the frames next week we've got some examples of early um, splash photo photography. If we mention splash photography most people think of the work of Harold Edgerton and his famous photograph Milk Drop Coronet uh, of the, 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 the drop of milk and the white crown which appears in, in the, the red background. But he wasn't the first person to take splash photographs. 50, 60 years earlier, Arthur Worthington, we've got some examples here, and our old friend Arthur Clive Banfield, who photographed the cat and dog jumping downstairs. He photographed splashes again in 1900. So again, hardly, hardly anybody knows about the work of Banfield, and yet 50 years before Edgerton, he was creating very similar, very similar images. Next we have uh, some more work by Harold Edgerton and these are his sequential multiple exposure stroboscopic images from the 1950s. Again reminiscent of the work that people might have seen downstairs that Marais was producing in the 1890s. Same idea that you take multiple shots on one, uh, on one plate or one piece of film which actually charts the movement through a period of time. And we have quite abstract uh, images here like a swing in an Indian club or a uh, baton twirling. And also, um, we've got Gussie Moran, the tennis player, serving, and we see all the movements from um, releasing the ball through to making the serve. And one of my favourites in the exhibition, this is the, uh, the dancer Gus Solomon. And he's photographed with his arms being spayed out, almost like a, a pair of wings. Uh, and you can see it, and again, quite, quite a remarkable, powerful image. Um, so again, transcends the boundaries between art, science and entertainment. You know, these were created in a very scientific way, but what Edgerton managed to do was create what were and are now regarded as works of art as well. And in this gallery, we also have one of our art commissions. This is a piece called Time Frame, which was created by Anne-Marie Colhane and Bob Levine. And Time Frame challenges our perceptions of speed. And what they did is, is to commission Leon Baptiste, who's a world-class 200-meter sprinter, not to go as fast as he could, but to walk as slowly as possible, to actually cover a distance as slowly as he possibly could, whilst keeping in forward motion. And because he is such a, a powerful muscular athlete, our assumption is that he has to go really quickly, and we assume that faster is better. So it's really challenging our perceptions of what we mean by speed, what do we mean by perfection, and also creating that tension between our perceptions um, and what we actually see on the screen. So he takes about 15 minutes to cover probably about 20, 30 meters or so. That must have been a, a real nightmare for him, a man who's used to yes. sprinting. Yeah, and I think in, in, they actually decided obviously to, to, to use somebody who was designed really for speed. To, to, so it was a real challenge for, for the athlete as well to actually uh, to, to work on this basis. 
So we have the main projection, which is a um, sort of panoramic format, and here you have the, uh, the extreme close-up where you see Leon Baptiste's feet, um, not wearing trainers, barefoot, actually moving very slowly. And you get to consider all the elements of motion. So even though his feet aren't moving forward very quickly, you see all the veins and the muscles, you see details like bits of gravel that adhere to the soles of his feet and so on. So again, it really challenges our, our, our perceptions. It makes us think about how we move, what's involved in movement, what's involved in walking. And again, it, it harks back to some of the images that you might have seen earlier, um, so for example, some of the Mybridge images of people walking. So it's that same idea, challenging perception. And, uh, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. And that was Colin Harding talking us through the In the Blink of an Eye exhibition at the National Media Museum. There's more information on this exhibition at nationalmediamuseum.org.uk. Well, gotta go. Me too. Uh, it's hard for us to leave when you're standing there, Mom. Push your down, son. So on the first podcast, right at the very end, we started the Squiggly Verses Challenge, and we encouraged our listeners and Squiggly readers to pick between Simpsons and Family Guy. Mm. And you all voted, which was wonderful. Nice response there. Yes, and uh, do we know who is the victor of this we should leave, epic battle? We should leave the victor till last. Maybe we should read out a few tweets and a few bits and bobs first of people got in touch. Fair enough. So, uh, Neil Whitman, a squiggly writer uh, and uh, Simpsons fan, mm-hmm. sent, us, uh, sent us this little note. Choosing between the Simpsons and Family Guy is like choosing between your two favourite children. Fortunately for me, these two children are very different. One child is a 25-year-old high achiever with moral values, while the other is a 13-year-old juvenile who laughs at their own fart jokes. So, good people of Squiggly, I implore you, choose Springfield, not Quahog. Choose neighbours like Ned, not Quagmire. Choose helper monkeys, not evil monkeys. Choose lovable Maggie, not menacing Stewie. Choose a night at Moe's, not at the Drunken Clam. Choose the sea captain, not Seamus the sailor. Choose Kent Brockman, not Tom Tucker. Choose a glass of duff, not a Partucket patriot. Choose life. Choose the Simpsons. Yeah. Do you think we can get the rights to that train spotting song to play in the background? We could try. Probably not. For a fellow who doesn't really seem to like Family Guy that much, he knows way more about the characters and the locations of Family Guy. I, I would <laughs> I'm say, kind of a fan. I would say, based on this, he's got exactly the same amount of knowledge on The Simpsons as he has on Family Guy. This is the thing, is like, you can be really, really familiar with something and, and also kind of hate it, but then keep exposing yourself to it and find yourself knowing all sorts of things about you know, I, for instance, know way too much about the universe of toddlers and tiaras because I hate everything that's involved with it and I can't turn away. So perhaps that's the relationship this fella has. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Know your enemy. I don't know what. Who's Seamus the sailor? Seamus the sailor is the is the, the dressed like a pirate, and he's got wooden arms and wooden legs. The joke is that. Oh right, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I didn't know he had a name. No, yeah, yeah, he's got a name. There you go. Well, just ask Neil. He knows everything about Family Guy. So Neil, in conclusion, big Family Guy fan. Yeah. I think. <laughs> Gary Chadwick at Super Biased Man via Twitter. Simpsons, it's better, of course, especially when you remember how a lot of the later seasons of it don't exist. Well, yeah, I kind of, that's sort of my 
school of thought. Well, the, the the late seasons aren't as uh, as good as the uh, opening seasons. I well, more that they just it didn't happen. The thing is, I think that this my vote is for The Simpsons. I think it's it's the best show, and that's the end of the sentence. It's it's the best at television that there's been, but it could have easily ended 15 years ago and still had that title. The magic of it and the genius of it was so concentrated uh, in that sort of first decade of of being on TV and especially, I guess, sort of a four or five year bubble within that, that it kind of everything sort of since has been a little uh, surplus to requirements. It obviously, you know, still has an audience. It still has viewing figures. I think I have at some point stopped being its audience. But I have nothing bad to say about, you know, the, the bulk of, of what made it good. I mean, when you think of the Looney Tunes, I mean, that's existed for a century, pretty much. The better part of a century. But what was good about the Looney Tunes, we'd say, what, late 30s to early 50s, mid 50s at best? Yeah. 60s Looney Tunes is unwatchable. That cartoon modern era it went into sort of dated rather badly, I think. And that kind of design style isn't as timeless. It's something that has to come around again every once in a while. It falls prey more to, you know, uh, uh, fashions, to trends. Um, and I think perhaps that's the era that The Simpsons, from my perception, and I'm now I've become a casual viewer of the newer ones, uh, but from my perception, it, it seems to have gone into that era. I think when people you know, 50 years from now, look back at The Simpsons as this timeless comedy classic. I can only assume that, you know, the the episodes that will be in heavy syndication and heavy rotation will be, you know, Mr. Plow, Homer in Space, mm. um, Whacking Day, uh, the, the Boy Scouts. There's an entire TV show's worth of flawless episodes that I'm sure will be what the show is remembered for. And probably the last 10 years or so will just be, you know, that kind of later years of the show that that time maybe won't have forgotten but i think won't pay as much attention to because we haven't forgotten you know the the looney tunes of the 60s and 70s and 80s but you really don't see it as often you see duck and muck and you see mm-hmm. you know robin hood daffy and you see the 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 one with dodgers yeah, yeah exactly you don't see duck dodgers 2 that he made in the 80s or that you know that second uh, uh singing frog one but it was just rehashing the same material over and over again. And it's, it's, it kind of looks more modern, but it doesn't have that soul. There's a magic to something that works that is very hard to recapture. And if it has an expiry date, then you know, the impulse should be to, to gracefully you know, step back once that date has been reached. There are plenty of people who will argue that The Simpsons doesn't have that expiry date, that it could go on for another 25 years and it will always be just as funny. Do you think that that's the, the thing is, because it's been going for 25 years, that you grew up with it and when you, you have your sort of golden childhood memories, you're remembering Bart the Genius, which, uh, not Bart the Genius, Bart the General, um, Bart the Genius, uh, which is a much earlier one. And my favourite one is Bart Gets an F. Mm-hmm. I love Bart gets an F. The little tiger tries so hard. Why does he keep failing? Just a little dim, I guess. If you watch Bart gets an F, it's almost made like a. It's made like a film. The music's different. The staging's different. I think David Silverman did that one, who directed the Simpsons movie. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic. It's a fantastic thing. But I remember that as a kid, and I can enjoy it watching it as an adult because I hadn't seen it in 10 years or 5 years or however long it was I hadn't seen it and I really enjoyed it again mm-hmm. and I, I laughed at all the gags but do you think it's because you because it's been going so long it's sort of missed out 
my my appreciation for it is more like an appreciation of, of where I was at the time. Is that yes. what you're going? Yeah. Not really. I mean, I I do feel a kind of nostalgic fondness for those very early ones, mm. like is it like that sort of you know first couple of years. Um, but the appreciation I have for the the show when it was at its strongest, I think, is is not really anything to do with who I was at the time or how good my childhood was at the time. It's just that it's it's very very well crafted, very funny timing is impeccable you know um and that took like three or four years to really hit a stride and it became it was already at that point a very different beast than it was originally i i do remember when i was like six or seven it was marketed as this show about bart simpson that was the character you related to because he was the same age or you know a little older he was mischievous and so that is where the nostalgia appeal lies for me but the genius of it is when they realized actually the angry dad if we focus more on having him be, you know, kind of a dunce and and be sort of prone to mishap and misadventure, we can tell so many more stories and have them be better and have them be more adventurous, you know, because there's only so much you can do with a 10-year-old boy. If you put that level of, you know, irresponsibility into the hands of an adult, then really it's kind of limitless. Also, I feel that the, the personality is kind of Homer Simpson when he was at his most endearing, was fundamentally a child in a man's body. Mm-hmm. So he had this level of adult responsibility that was at odds with, you know, this complete lack of, of real social awareness and how to handle, you know, raising children, how to handle a marriage. Nowadays, it's just kind of become more of a, okay, Homer Simpson, we know he's dumb. Uh, we know it's funny if we hurt him a lot. Um this ingredient plus this ingredient stir it all together and go there was an interview with al jean about five six years ago where he was talking he made a similar point that you did where he feels that a lot of the negative criticism is that people you know wish that they were still you know at the age they were when the simpsons was in its fifth season uh i don't i i think i was 10 or 11 who, why would you want to go back there? Like, as there was nothing going on with me at the time. I couldn't drink. I couldn't have sex. I couldn't go out. You know, I was basically me and, I don't know, television and Nintendo. And, you know, uh, uh, my other idiot friends, I couldn't do anything that fun with anyway. <laughs> We'd go out and play. Like, that was the era of my life that it was. So there's nothing, like, that I yearn for in that. I think in a lot of respects, the newer ones have kind of developed a quality that that family guy had from the start which was the characters are sort of interchangeable now in any sort of given story where once there was something that defined the peripheral characters and the main characters as well that's eroded over time and you could pretty much okay what uh what incidental character shall we have push this story forward? Oh, let's pluck out the guy in the bumblebee suit. Or we could have, you know, the newsreader or grandpa. We haven't done anything with him in a few episodes. Yeah. And the dialogue wouldn't necessarily even have to change except maybe, you know, throw in a few jokes about being old. Um, Family Guy was always like that. And so it's a sort of forgivable quality because there was never any stab at character development. There was never any stab at emotion. There was never any real desire to have it be a show that cared for continuity you know in one episode peter griffin is a complete moron in another he's very literate nowadays you can have sort of episodes about you know brian and stewie going on an adventure that could just as easily be cleveland and quagmire it's just he's doing the voice differently so that's the quality that the simpsons i think at this point has taken on and that to me feels that 
not like a betrayal because at the end of the day it's a cartoon but it's like eh, it, I did believe in this world for a while and I still do I can watch the old ones and, and feel the sense of real humanity in it talking about um, about the difference between the two sets of families I think Stewie's changed an awful lot when Stewie first mm. started off he went round and his, his voice was a bit more Rex Harrison he was going to take over the world and now you'll have an entire episode where Stewie's camp you know, mm. so they can't really decide whether Stewie's camp or whether Stewie's evil, and it's and it's an evolution of character because they've found a joke and they've decided to go down that route with it. Yeah, you know, Brian's book—that's another thing that they that they carried on with, and they're not they're not afraid to spend in Family Guy. I find. Yeah, yeah. They're not afraid to spend because they did uh, all the jokes, you know, about Brian's writing his novel. Brian finally wrote his novel, so they can't do that joke anymore. Right, right. They have no mercy for the characters. It's which is. I think you can only go so long without conceding certain things and, and embracing things that will inevitably lead to change. So you will have, you know, a, a, okay, this has been a running gag for long enough. One of the shows I have the absolute utmost respect for is Father Ted. And that was a show that started repeating itself in the last year. And so they said, okay, we don't want to do this anymore. I think the fact that Father Ted died might have had... No, it was done. It was always going to be over. Wow. And then, like, I think it was like the week the last season was going to air, the guy died. Yeah, um, it was the third week, I think. So when you apply that to characters who, okay, they've reached a point where, okay, we've done everything we can of the comedy of the baby that's going to take over the world. So now let's embrace the comedy of, okay, actually, he's really kind of ineffectual and kind of a walking joke. That sort of natural progression with characters is an important thing in a show. And like I said with The Simpsons, it's what made Homer sort of go from this irascible, grumpy guy. And then he became very endearing. And then later on became just kind of, you know, bullheaded. When you think of like Cartman in South Park, I mean, that was a, that's a character who, you know, over time morphed from being, you know, the stereotype of that fat kid who then, when the show be, had sort of a, a socio-political agenda, became the voice of the Republican right. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's a, <laughs> very right wing, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, it, it, and and the performance change and it, that character from that point on had a different function within the dynamic of the show because it wasn't a show so much about four kids going on adventures just because it was four kids going on adventures for some analogous reason to make some kind of point. Nowadays, I mean, it's a show that where he's just crazy. Like, yeah, I do, I do like what I like about South Park, and in a way, it's something that I like about The Simpsons as well as uh, Family Guys that. You can take these characters, South Park for a particular example, is you can have Cartman controlling Cthulhu for an entire three right. episodes, and you can have Kenny dying and stuff, but at the end of the day, or at the start of the next episode, they'll always meet at the bus stop, or they'll be playing basketball in the court, or they'll be at school, you know, they'll be the familiar twang of the guitar. And, yeah. and the Simpsons will always end up on the couch the next week. But I think that South Park and Family Guy, they set an important precedent right from the offset, which was... They never tried to legitimize what they were doing from a storytelling perspective or a, a character development perspective. At one point, I remember like a few years ago, someone I was watching a South Park with were commenting on, I think it was like Britney Spears, uh, but being hounded by the media and she blows her head off, but she's still alive. And that, for some reason, that visual offended this person's sensibilities. So their impulse was, ah, South Park, it's really jumped the shark. It was like... You can't use that phrase with South Park. It's a show that in the first couple of episodes 
had people blowing each other's heads off, had talking feces, had yeah, giant turkeys. robot Barbara Streisand. You know, it's, <laughs> it was never a show that had any integrity. It was just funny. But then you can look at an old Simpsons and, and see, okay, this is an episode about a guy struggling because his daughter is prodigiously gifted and her teacher is trying to communicate that to him, but he just doesn't get it. And it's kind of heartrending. Or later on, you know, the, the sort of unfortunate relationship he has with his mother that he's never allowed to see because she's on the run. It's, it's, they can be very, very funny and also very, very poignant. But that was something that just, it seemed to me, the sustainability of that, that humanity of those characters just kind of, it couldn't last just by the nature of what television is and what that kind of storytelling is. It's interesting seeing how like some shows can go away for a long time and then come back and it's as if, you know, nothing has happened. I think that was sort of the case with Family Guy, like it it was pretty much in limbo for a while and Mm -hmm. then... When it came back, it, like everyone really wanted it to come back because it was in that interim that everyone decided it was great, you know. Yeah. Um, and then it came back and it was sort of on autopilot from that point on. And a similar thing kind of happened with Futurama recently, like that came back. Just to digress a little bit on Futurama, is the problem with Futurama was the time. I think it was mm. trying to stretch it out for an hour and a half. An hour and a half was too long. And the episodes when they were split into three... They didn't work too well. However, the new series, uh, I really enjoy the new series. There's some really cool uh, episodes. I oh, mean, in the there. specials that they did. Yeah, the, the, the specials so, when okay. they came back. Uh, right. uh, Bender's Big Score, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Beast with a Billion Backs, things like that. Right. No, yeah, I mean, like from like from the original series mm-hmm. on Fox, right? Yeah. And then the new ones are now on Comedy Central. Comedy Central, yeah. yeah. There's so much of it that is fundamentally the same show. And going back to, like you say, I agree with you now that I, I, I remember. The movies like but going back to that episode formula like that it then was instantly okay we're watching futurama again and we know everything we need to know let's go and the only real concern as well is it's still going to be funny and I, I thought it was great i was really impressed with just how much it seemed like no time had gone by at all yeah you know? what i didn't expect that from was when they brought back Beavis and Butthead. And that's just come back to the UK now. It came to uh, the States about six months ago. That's one of those things like, well, that was so 90s. Yeah. That was so of its era. It's impossible to, to, to recapture that. Well, it's it's in HD. That's the only difference. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as far as the storylines go, very funny. Not always like... like hilarious side-splitting laugh-out-loud funny but that was never sort of the nature of the beast with that show anyway it was always a very hard sell beavis and butthead yeah i found when i was it was one of those shows where it seemed very very popular yeah just not to anyone you knew yeah (laughs) (laughs) well i do like the way that um mtv has changed oh yeah, yeah and it's almost as if mtv have spent the past decade creating these horrendous crap shows <laughs> for Beavis and Butthead to come for back the, and take the mickey for out their of, benefit because yeah. back in the 90s they were taking the mickey out of Nirvana and, yeah. and, and things like that well, they took the mickey out of, of the 90s contemporary music scene exactly yeah it being an MTV show that made a lot of sense you know yeah and now they take the mickey out of Katy Perry and Lady Gaga but also you've got stuff like uh, My Super Sweet 16 and, mm. and horrible stuff like uh, Keeping Up With The Kardashians and- interestingly it's the element of it that I think I, I welcome the most you can't have them sitting and watching you know Red Hot Chili Peppers videos or, or you know um, Ozzy Osbourne videos um, that wouldn't work no. but embracing okay MTV has become this different entity um, 
that was a sort of a genius move. But what's different about that, and that's what has changed in terms of the personalities of the characters, they're the same within the shows, within the episodes. But when they're doing the commentary thing, it really seems to me like they've just become Mike Judge <laughs> doing uh, talking to MTV, just alternating between the voices. It's because, a good soapbox for him to have, yeah, isn't it? They're, they're kind of too smart because they're, they're very witty and insightful about their critiques of how awful these shows are. Yeah. It's not going to be easy to take care of a baby with a controller in your hand. This chick is a horrible actor. <laughs> I have nothing better to do. That's what you said, like, two minutes uh, ago. Wait a minute. I think this is real. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, so um, So she's not a bad actor, then. <laughs> Just a bad person. <laughs> and the thing about Beavis and Butthead was they would never be that self-aware. The Beavis and Butthead that I know wouldn't look at the characters from the, uh, the Jersey Shore and, you know, think that they were dumb or think that they were idiots. They would admire them they would you know they would think that they would they would think that people like you know jay wow or whoever the the character i don't know the names but you know no. they would think like the guys in that show were p- to be idolized because they had sex a lot they went out and partied that whole lifestyle yeah was what the beavis and butthead of my childhood they would be the demographic of a show like the jersey shore they yeah. wouldn't deride it in my head you know mm. i mean obviously mike judge created them but i think like maybe Consciously, he he decided to take that element of the show and just have it. You know what? I'm just have an awful lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> about what TV has become. I, I DJ. I spin records. I can Yo, spin yeah, pizza. That's my job. Oh, oh, I get it. Yeah, he he spins records, and records are around just like the dough, so he can spin the dough. See. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, you know, it's not funny, but um, but you know, I get it. If you're going to change one bit of Beavis and Butthead, I mean, it's not a massive change, but it's a great change, mm-hmm. I think. I think it's, I That's think, great, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sort of going back to the older ones, like, that was always a, it was always a satirical show. But, like I was saying before, it was very hard to explain that to people. It was always Mike Judge kind of, I don't know, exorcising his despair as to what awful, awful creatures adolescent boys were. Yeah. And the way, you know, people around them, a lot of the, the later episodes of the original run of Beavis and Butthead, uh, more of the humor was about the world around them and how, you know, the people who were supposedly smarter were almost worse because they should have had accountability. And Beavis and Butthead were sort of weirdly innocent in it all, even though they were ugly, uncouth, um, juvenile. Yeah. Um, that's what you get to be when you're a child. And, you know, teenage boys are kind of mired in that for, for much longer. So I think maybe sort of having an element that's more directly, okay, these are real life examples of what I'm saying with these characters. And these characters think that they're deplorable. Yeah. So imagine what that, you know, it's not quite so consistent, but like not in a bad way, really. Like it's it's in a way that's very, very funny, you know. If, if a caricature of disgusting thinks you're disgusting, then you must be pretty disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. What I do love is that they, for those scenes, because they would always recycle the animation, yeah. and instead of creating new animation to recycle, they're just recycling the 90s animation. Mm-hmm. So it goes from like the HD story episode, to then it cuts to them watching MTV, and it's like really SD blurry animation. <laughs> it's great. Never would have thought I'd hear Beavis and Bird talking about a Katy Perry song. No, no. Or having Beavis relate to it. What a treat. <laughs> Do you have a particular favourite Simpsons episode or Family Guy episode? Or Simpsons on, on is a, a, a Cape Fear, where it's basically the movie Cape Fear, but with Sideshow Bob as Robert De Niro, and uh, I could watch him stepping on rakes. 
Yeah, for an hour. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. But that was an episode that, you know, just the, the comedy beats to that. That was, I think, it at its finest. I mean, that whole kind of era, that whole sort of year, like I could, if I thought about it, like I'd find just as much to like about so many other episodes. Just, that was the one that I think I've, I probably watched the most. The driving into the desert singing Gilbert and Sullivan songs. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then a bit later is revealed to be foreshadowing, but like it, in that moment, it's so random and weird. And why would they be doing that? Yeah. It's hysterical, you know. Filled to the rim with girlish glee. Three little girls from school. Everything is a joy of fun. <laughs> what about uh, Family Guy? Favorite Family Guy episode? You know, Family Guy is a show that I, my fondness for it is more about where I was at the time because I was a teenager. I was just starting to do the fun things in life and, you know, going home the next day and watching some Family Guy and, and being able to get the jokes because they were quite grown up. And so I think it would be something in the first couple years before it got cancelled initially because um, I was like one of 10 people, it seemed, who was watching it in England. And I would watch it quite a lot in Canada. And then eventually it got imported over here, but they would show it at like 10 in the morning on Channel 4. So they'd cut out like 10 minutes yeah. per episode. Like there's so much stuff you couldn't show during the day. I forgot about that. Yeah. But yeah, I think probably one of my favorites was like the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory one. Because it was, it was probably quite Simpsons-ish. For me, um, I have favorite Simpsons episodes. I've got no sort of preference era-wise, but I think my favorite ones do fit around that era that you was talking about. Right. I'm not offended by the new stuff. I'm, you know, I'm not. I don't uh, laugh at the old stuff. But my my favorite episodes must be, like um, I've said, Bart gets an F. Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic episode. It's just it's great. Um, I like Bart the Daredevil, where uh, with Lance, the Canyon one. With, yeah. Yes, the famous one of the Canyon and Lance Murdoch, mm -hmm. and uh, and right at the end, Homer's in in hospital. And it just cuts to Homer in hospital in, in, and he turns to the to Lance Murdoch, the daredevil, and says, you know, I think you've got problems. You try raising my kids. And then it cuts. It's just yeah. a, such a beautiful, uh, draws yeah. a lot from... Action punchline credits. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, that um, draws a lot from uh, Chuck Jones, well, the way that Homer yeah. falls down the cliff but actually gets injured, you know. There's always going to be someone, some disgruntled party, no matter what. There are people who are probably going to, you know contend that the the ones that I like so much were really old and, and antiquated and lame, you know, because of, of the way that, you know, the animation looks or whatever, and, you know, that the new ones are, are as good as it's ever been, if not better. There was a South Park on last night. It's like the newest one that they showed in the UK. I generally don't find myself laughing out loud so much at South Park nowadays. I was screaming. Like, really. <laughs> like, it, it was... To me, it seemed to encapsulate all that I really liked about that show when it was strong. I am sure that if I go online and find like a message board or a forum or a Twitter or something, it's going to be full of people saying that was the worst episode yeah, ever. Yeah. Was, when will these guys just give up? You know, mm -hmm. um, because what they take from it is completely different from what I take from it. I never sort of got the the rivalry element between these shows between Family Guy and The Simpsons. Like it, it was that same essential setup, like family, dim-witted father at the helm, you know, but it was always done in a very different way. Like, it just seemed that there were a couple of motifs in terms of the, the, the comedy of repetition and the comedy of cutaway mm -hmm. that The Simpsons, I think, at that point hadn't had stopped doing. That seemed more of the, the rip-off than the actual premise, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I never really felt that the two shows 
needed to be compared so much. Let's have a look at some more some more comments then. Uh, JK Ricky, uh, and that's on Twitter at JK R of F TM. Thanks for such a confusing uh, name, um, JK. It says, "Come on, Squiggly. Simpsons versus Family Guy. The answer is always The Simpsons." Always, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> well, we should really reveal who won our poll. It seems like a bit of a mystery to me as to which show came out on top. Well, the, the winner, the overwhelming winner, with mm-hmm. well over half the votes, was The Simpsons. Really? Yeah, surprise, surprise. Who saw that coming? <laughs> oh! A deer! A female deer. So we should set up another one. I enjoyed this. Mm. I enjoyed uh, Simpsons versus Family Guy. There are many wrongs we could write with this versus feature. Yeah. How about Tom and Jerry versus Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner? They've both got a sort of. They're both like a duo, both attacking each other. Going sort of old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah take okay. it back. So, yeah. Would you rather see uh, Tom getting smashed over the head with a mallet, or would you rather see Wiley Coyote being crushed by a boulder? Well, as you know, I, I have some some rather dark memories associated with with the Roadrunner cartoons, but uh, I'll I'll you know. So which is, which is which is the best? We're going to leave it open to the uh, squiggly audience. Go on to the Roadrunner. <coughs> well, I'm staying out of this okay. until, until the podcast. So go down to the squiggly website and uh, vote. Which is best, Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, or Tom and Jerry? So thank you all for listening to our second ever Squiggly podcast. I've been Steve Henderson. You can catch me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. I've been Ben Mitchell at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter. BenMitchellBlog.blogspot.com Also, quick plug, if you're one of those animation types who likes their indie graphic novels, check out ThroatBook.com. The music for this podcast was created by Wesley Allard. You can catch him at WesleyAllard.com. We'd like to thank everyone who helped us with this edition of the podcast, Barry Purvis, Stop Motion Legend. We'd also like to thank our friends at AVA for providing us with Barry Purvis's book, Stop Motion, as well as our friends at Focal Press for providing us with stop motion, passion, process and performance. Also, thanks again to Fraser McLean, his book, Setting the Scene, out now. Also, thanks to the National Media Museum in Bradford and Colin for showing us around the Blink of an Eye exhibition, which is on until September. And to squiggly contributor Tanya Vincent and all you lovely listeners and readers out there, if you'd like to get in touch, podcast at squiggly.co.uk. Until the next podcast, thank you and goodbye.